elsewhere. My name is Ian Ditchburn. So as you may have noticed, this is going to be a long one, just over two and a half hours long with intro and the music, but I think you'll find that it's a story that's worth your time. It's going to be a difficult story for a lot of you to hear. We discuss rape, kidnapping, assault, drug use, to name a few things. I feel like it's important to discuss these issues as frankly as possible, even the hard ones. And that's a part of what this project's all about. Rayanne is a very special person. The things that she has gone through are indescribable. But despite that, she's gone on to become one of the most positive and bright people that I think I've ever met. And I'm very happy to have her as a friend. We're going to play you in with a short song. It's in Russian. But if you look at the translation, it is raw and unapologetic. Much like today's guest. This is Yanka Jagaleva with My Sorrow is Luminous. So I'm here with Rayanne Irving. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for being here. You're very welcome. Yeah, you were actually the first guest that I reached out to when I first had the idea for this podcast. And um, yeah, I was at work. Uh, I, I was landscaping back then. And I, I messaged you on my, my lunch break. And when you got back to me so immediately and gave me such a positive response, it was uh, one of the first encouraging kind of signs. It was like, oh, yeah. I, cu- I could do this. This yeah. is something that's possible. And uh, here we are about six months later, and it's finally happening. So very, very grateful for you to be here. Oh, I'm grateful to be on. It's awesome. Um, so yeah, uh, we had the unique opportunity of uh, being located in the downtown east side, our studio here, uh, to go explore some of the old neighborhoods that you were uh, working back in the 90s. And it turns out that you didn't actually work down here at all. Back then, the sort of main strip was actually in my neighborhood that I grew up in, uh, over in Hastings Sunrise, which for those who don't know is around Hastings and Nanaimo area. And so the first question I had to ask you was just, uh, how has it changed since then? Yeah, how has it not changed? Yeah. Uh, so where there was commercialized buildings, now there's houses, there's parking lots, there is no vines all over. There used to be a lot of vines over a lot of the buildings and whatnot, um, which sounds weird, but it's just something 
that just stuck in my mind uh, yeah. down the certain walks that I used to make. And um, it's a lot brighter. <laughs> it's a lot brighter there. And there's not, there's not, obviously there's just not as many people. Um, it's very suburban, I guess. Yeah, yeah. A lot yeah. of, a lot of bands practicing in the warehouses mm-hmm. there and sort of nice boutique bars yes. and shit like that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's changed a lot. And there's a lot of people walking around without fear. <laughs> and that sounds odd, but it was, yeah. we didn't get that back then. I mean, there was a guy walked right up behind us as I tripped and, you know, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, why, why are you speaking to me? Yeah, and an apology. Yeah, an yeah. apology and stuff. And that sounds odd, but, you know, back then, guys didn't just randomly walk down blocks like that because it was very dangerous for them to do so. So, I mean, unless you're rolling through in a car um, or you're going down there to purchase uh, sex from a minor, because that was the kiddie stroll back then. That, that whole area was, uh, I don't think I remember seeing anybody over the age of 20 at that point on mm-hmm. that road. So, yeah. Yeah. How many people do you think uh, you were working with? Were they all underage? Or for, like, you said that was the kiddie stroll. So that was kind of where people would go to to seek out underage people, I suppose. I would imagine so. I, you know, I was 16 at the time. I had just turned 16. So I didn't have the awareness to even know that that was the kiddie stroll. I was told it was a kiddie stroll afterwards, you know. Um, And I worked with all underage girls. Some of the other girls that I knew, they were 18, 19. I never saw a girl, at least not in my area, that was over 20, unless they were in, say, the Make-A-Wish vans um, that used to drive down. And What's a Make-A-Wish van? Um, no, wait, not Make-A-Wish van. They're, sorry, they're just referred to as the Wish vans. Okay. Not Make-A-Wish vans. getting that confused. Yeah, exactly. Trademark. <laughs> trademark. Yeah. <laughs> you roll that one back, right? Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, the Wish vans. So Wish fans used to come around and give uh, girls like myself hot coffee, sandwiches, a bad date report. So if people were going missing, which they were at that time because Robert Picton was on the loose, mm-hmm. um, that's they would let us know if someone had attempted to rape a girl, if he had, say, held her up or beat her up, whatnot. And then they would ask us to keep an eye out for the girls that were missing. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's go back to where it all started then. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I think the real kind of purpose of this interview is to kind of give people uh, an idea of how this happens because it's an issue that I think there's a lot of sort of moral hand-wringing around women's sexuality at the mm-hmm. best of times. So when we're talking about a situation as dicey as as prostitution, especially youth prostitution, yeah. it's an issue that people don't necessarily know about and they don't necessarily know how people get involved in it. It's just kind of assumed that you know the m- moral failure at some point led these people down a sort of bad path. Well, so. it's a taboo subject. Agreed. Right? Yeah. Um, and I believe that the word taboo actually stemmed from, I think it came from... Uh, I'd have to look it up now. Now I can't remember all of a sudden. Oh, that's <laughs> like, okay. Ah, it came from somewhere. Um, yeah, I'm drawing a complete blank. So I'm on the spot. Anyways, the word taboo did not mean taboo. It mm-hmm. uh, it stemmed from something else. Um, how do girls get pulled in? I think that there is... There's so many ways that you could look at it. I mean, you have biological instinct. You have epigenetics. You have social socialism. You have culture. Um, and then you had a kid like myself where it was all of the above and I didn't have a home. I didn't have anyone to look after and I needed people to take care of me and to love me. And that was really what it boiled down to for me. Um, I mean, do you want to start right at the beginning? Yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's okay, do it. Let's we got enough in. time. So let's, uh, right. let's dive in. All right. So when, uh, I just turned 16, I was no longer living at home and, um, 
I had been sent uh, by my aunt. I'd been staying with her in White Rock, and she threw me on a bus up to go see my dad. My dad was a drug addict, and he died a, a drug addict. Um, and he was wild and crazy and fun and out of control. And he was just really pushing me past my limits of being able to be around him at 16. And, you know, I had lost everything at that point. I didn't have a home with my, my mom anymore. I grew up raised on a farm and everything had been taken away from me. So all of my family, my pets, everything I'd ever known. So here I'm living with this guy who's getting higher than a kite, running around the house butt as naked and uh, trying to light shit on fire talking to dead people. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, that was kind of the tipping point for me. Yeah. Um, so you you'd been socialized around hard drug use from a, a fairly young age, from I guess. From a fairly young yeah. age. On my father's side. Yeah. He, he was kind of notorious for uh, leaving me places. He didn't handle social situations very well when it came to family pressure. So, you know, if something happened to him personally, he would drop me off at the neighbors and say, hey, I'll be right back. And he'd be gone for three, four or five days. And but the they cops loved were him. called. Yeah. yeah but popular neighbor. Yeah. Um, actually, the one neighbor he dropped me off with, he had just moved in. He didn't even know me. So that was, yeah, Craig just dropped me off with strangers. I was like, hey, I'll be back. And then he just didn't didn't come back. Cops were called in that time. Um, and he would take us to parties and kind of sit us down on chairs and just leave us there. And um, he would take me to drug houses and and sit out, make me sit outside in the car and wait for him. And he'd be in the drug house for hours um, until I'd finally just go bang on the door and be like, hey, you need to... You need to come get me. I want to go home now. You know, and he was uh, looking after his mother at the time. And my mom uh, was down at the coast with her husband. And so she didn't she didn't know a lot of that kind of stuff was taking place at the no. time. Yeah. So um, Craig was running around naked trying to light shit on fire. And I said, enough's enough. I can't, I can't take this anymore. And so I left, like, the next day. And I grabbed a bus and uh, came down to Langley. And I didn't, didn't tell my mom that I'd come down. Her and I hadn't spoken in, I want to say, at least three months. Um, so I went and uh, partied with my friends. I was really beginning to rebel at that point. I had never re rebelled at all. Um, up until the age of 13, I was, you know, on and off the honor roll. Um, I had ADD, uh, but I had high, high grades, high marks. Um, and I was in 4-H, and I was going to horse shows every weekend. So up until the age of 14, you know, I was really straight-laced. I didn't know how to be anything other than that because my mom was very type A overbearing and so to go from one extreme parent to the other you know it's I, I rebelled pretty hard against both of them and so so um I moved back down didn't tell anybody and I was just staying with friends and I met a guy and we started dating thought I was in love I was 16 and just turned 16 and on his 19th birthday he uh raped me and I didn't know that it wasn't my fault I just knew that something bad had happened, and uh, I didn't know where I left to go. You know, I couldn't go home. You were staying with him at this time. I was staying with him on and off at this time, yeah. And uh, so I didn't know where to go or how to cope with the situation. So he picked me up and carried me to bed. He had raped me on uh, the living room floor, and... Uh, and I woke up the next morning and... And this is how you lost your virginity as no, well. No, uh, sadly. <laughs> sadly, yes, sadly, no. Um, I'm still unclear on that. And that sounds really hokey, hokey. But I think about two, three weeks prior to that, I had been sort of seeing another guy. And there was a drunk incident. And uh, on a picnic table. And whether or not I lost my virginity is actually a question for me. Um, 
I have memories of fooling around with a guy and stuff like that. And I know that everyone joked around and talked about it afterwards. But I don't remember there being the pain that there was when Chris raped me. So mm -hmm. it. Yeah. I just, I guess I'll just never really know. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, um, I woke up the next morning after Chris raped me and it was really painful. I mean, he choked me out and I blacked out and passed out and, uh, during the rape, during the rape. Yeah. He held me down and smothered me, uh, for a lot of years after that, I had real issue with, um, anything. I was really claustrophobic with anything over my face or on my throat after that. Cause he held me down with my chest and over my mouth. Um, were you conscious for much of the incident, or did that happen early on in the experience? Yeah, no. He started off by wanting to go down on me, and I'd never I'd never experienced that with a boy at all. And I was like, oh, well, I guess, okay. I mean, I guess this is what I'm supposed to do. This is my boyfriend. And, you know, he'd been really good. He'd never pressured me for anything. We'd been sleeping beside each other for, like, a couple weeks at that point, and mm -hmm. he'd never asked me for anything more. So, uh, so when he wanted to go farther, I felt an obligation to go farther, even though I was really uncomfortable with the situation. And so when he went down on me, um, I was really uncomfortable and I was trying to get him to like come back up and just cuddle with me and go to sleep. I was pretty drunk at the time. And he did, but as he did, all of a sudden, um, just everything turned from kind of loverly to really abusive, you know, and, and it took me a minute to register the difference, you know, when, when a kneading hand turned to a bruising grip. Right. Um, and then there was just this piercing pain. And that's when I realized, really realized what was happening. And I started to hyperventilate and I was like to say, no, no, no. And as I got louder, he covered my mouth and then held down. And then he was suffocating me until I passed out. So when I came to, he was finished and he was crying and pulled, he was crying. Yeah, he cried and pulled me into his lap and told me that uh, it was my fault because I was so beautiful and he just couldn't help himself. And I was really torn. Here's this person bawling their eyes out, rocking you like you're a baby, telling you that, you know, you're they're so sorry and that, you know, you were just so gorgeous that they couldn't resist. And here I had been starved for love and attention for most of my life uh, by my parents who, and I'd been shuffled around. I'd been moved from family member to family member, you know, and so and here's this person crying you know, because they'd hurt me. And that's something none of my family members had ever done. So I just was very really confusing. It was very confusing. I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. So he picked me up and carried me to bed. And then the next morning I woke up and he had held me so tight in the night that, you know, I felt like my limbs had gone numb and I couldn't get away from him. I felt very smothered by him. He locked me down. And when I woke up, it's because his friend was standing over the bed and I didn't understand why his friend was in the bedroom, like staring at us. And uh, he just said, hey, get up. Kind of everybody else is gone. And so we all got up and went to the kitchen, and I made us breakfast. And they all started talking just really out of the ordinary stuff that I honestly didn't know much about. They started talking about stuff like circle jerking and asking me, you know, sexual questions, whether or not uh, they didn't so much as ask as implied and actually just flat out told me, oh, isn't it your dream? Don't you want to have a threesome? Hasn't that always been your dream? And I'm sitting there going, no, no, it's really has it. That's never crossed my mind. Thanks. And they just, they wanted me to do stuff. They wanted to jerk off. They wanted to all fuck me. And I was really uncomfortable with the situation. And your boyfriend was there at the time and He as well. was, yeah. At first it started off with uh, his two friends instigating it. And he didn't say anything. And I didn't understand that at the time. And what I would come to learn in my 30s is that he didn't say anything because 
if the other guys joined in, that somehow would have made it okay what he had done. There was more than just one, you know. And I think that when you, when men in particular, I was raped in my 30s by uh, my boyfriend. And that's when I really started to understand that I had a pattern going on in my life that had been created as a child. And I realized that people that do take action like that number one when they get in a group together it's like a bloodlust that guys just can egg each other on until they do unthinkable acts and I don't understand that but I do understand that they like to make you out to be the bad person because if you ever turn around and point the finger on them they can actually turn around and say well don't you know and so I think that he allowed his friends and I can only surmise and assume you know 30 years later with you know the mind of an adult, not a traumatized child, that he allowed for that to happen because of his own guilt over what had happened. Because then it made it okay because there was more than just one. And they could turn it into a story that, you know, allowed for them not to be in the wrong in that situation. Some sort of diffusion of responsibility. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So Very dark. Yeah, very dark. So they egged it on, and he was really quiet during that. And they wanted me to dance, and I was really uncomfortable. And so I phoned one of my friends and left a pager message and I just I felt like something awful was going to happen but I didn't know how to get out of there when I stood up to go leave the one guy actually stepped in front of me he's like well what do you need what do you need and um and uh and they wanted me to dance for them and I just said well like I don't want to fuck you guys but I guess I'll dance but you know I want out of here and I need a drink so one of them came back with a drink and that was really most of what I remembered after that is uh is fragments and uh, they gave me a drink. There was no alcohol in it whatsoever. And what do you next, think was in it? You know, I did some research on that. And I'm pretty sure that it was GHB or the date rape drug. Yeah. Um, because of the way that it hit me. And, and I actually know for a fact that they overdosed me on it as well. Because they gave it to me more than once during whatever it was that was taking place. Because I came to halfway in between what was happening and started to kind of resist. And they handed me um, another mug. And I remember being incredibly thirsty. So... Given everything, the fact that I had a faint heartbeat, uh, the nausea, everything that was going on, my inability to fight them off, I just lost all control of my limbs. Like, I just, you know, I lost all control. But at some point, I was a participant in this, and I don't, I didn't understand how that could have worked, you know? So that's when I read up on the date rape drug and GHB, and I was like, oh, that makes a lot more sense to me now. So I understood a little bit more from the perspective of how the drug worked, how they were able to manipulate the situation, but how I had no strength in or saying yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine there's a level of suggestibility that comes with the effects of the uh, of the drug. Or were, you just, or were you just out? No, I just blacked out. You were out. just completely, okay. I was blacked out. Yeah. Um so when the drug first started to take effect on me, I lost all my strength as they were pushing me into the couch. And it was a white couch. I remember that. And I was drowning in this couch and they were all over me and their hands were on me. And every time I slapped one hand away, another one took its place. I dove out from between them all. I hit the carpet. It was my, my nails, everything got bloody because I was trying to drag myself out from underneath of them, like through their legs and their feet. And I pulled myself too and I leapt to go. And they grabbed me by the back of my sweater and by my hood and jerked me back and then they all surrounded me and I was half standing at that point they were just ripping my clothes off and ripping my hair out and they just overpowered me and the drug had taken full effect at that point and I just my legs just went out from underneath me I just sank to the ground and um I remember saying you know can you please take this to the bedroom I've never had sex in a bedroom you know I was trying to make a joke out of it because that's how I deal with pain 
and fear is, is I make a lot of inappropriate jokes and I laugh inappropriately at a lot of things. Yeah. 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 yeah it's a coping mechanism. What was your next memory then after the incident? Uh, the next memory that came to me was much later afterwards. So I actually woke up in a bathtub after that and I was naked and I didn't understand how I'd gotten there. So it wasn't until, um, I think we were driving that I really started to have memories. They threw me into a truck and I started to have the flashbacks then. And, uh, so the next memory that technically would have been there would have been, I was on a bed and there was a guy lying down in front of me and there was a guy behind me. And, um, one guy was trying to get me to give him oral sex and the other person behind me was hurting me. And then that's when I was resisting. And then I looked to the right, and that's when the other guy came up with another mug, and he was handing it to me mm-hmm. and stuff. And I took it, and I drank it down. Yeah. And then... Well, I imagine at that point you kind of wanted to... That's really dis- thirsty. Dis- oh. Yeah, yeah. That's actually apparently a side effect of the drug. I didn't know that. But Yeah. Were you really doing it thirsty. because you wanted to knock yourself out, and you wanted to disassociate, or were you just so out of it? I was so out of it, and yeah. I was thirsty. That's the main thing I remember, is just being really incredibly thirsty and not understanding what was happening to me. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever press charges against these guys? Or no, do you know where they are now? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yikes. Oh, fucking Facebook, hey? Oh, God. <laughs> I found one of them on Facebook. It never occurred to me in all those years yeah. until Have recently. Have you ever thought about it? No. no. No, I've never even thought about it. Uh, back then, I had friends that wanted to take care and handle the situation. Handle it in-house. They really did. Yeah. And I was terrified. I was so scared. I mean, their family, they were a big deal. Uh, my boyfriend's family was a really big deal in the town that I grew up in. And they had a lot of money. And I remember being terrified that they would sue if something terrible happened. Because yeah. there was three, three against one. You know, so what do you... And they'd probably just claim that you lied as well, as well, so often big, happens. That was a big, that was the scary part. He had told me right after he raped me that it was my fault. It was my fault. You know, when I was there, I'd been drinking. I'd smoked a little bit of pot. How was it not my fault? I was the only girl in the house. You know, I accepted a drink from them. You know, I was really, really concerned that it was my fault. And I think I took on far too much responsibility. I took, I took all the responsibility of what happened to me, and I left none of it for them for probably even still now. Even still now, I think I accept far more of the responsibility than I should for what happened to me. Yeah. 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 Well, I suppose that's a good coping mechanism for not just being, just carrying around extreme anger around. Because if you did hold it on them, I imagine it would be quite difficult. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine, I don't, I don't know how to hate. I don't. I can't imagine blaming somebody else for, you know, I had, I made some very clear decisions. You know, I chose to leave home. I chose to not stick around with my parents. Um, I chose to be with my boyfriend and uh, I chose to stay after, even after he raped me, I chose to stay. Those were all choices. I mean, they might've been misinformed choices. They might've been very uneducated guesses onto the character of who this person was. I didn't really know, but they were still my choices. And I don't see how you can point a finger at anybody else, even him, you know, he was who he was. And I also have a very strong spirituality in the sense that I believe, um, that we all make choices for the experience and that we carry that on in a soul lesson. And so I believe that I'd made a series of choices to lead me to where I am today so that I could show other people how to, how to heal the different steps that it can take and that they can get through these things that happen to them. And that, you know, you don't need to fall in down that path of victimhood or get suspended in a life of toxicity or 
you know, die like my dad did. You know, I mean, my dad was dead for six weeks before anybody found his body because he had disassociated himself and isolated himself to the point where no one could be around him because to love him was to hurt. And I think a lot of people go down that road where they are so torn and they're so lost that the reality that they've created in their head is far superior to the reality that's waiting for them in life and they don't know how to navigate anything outside of the world that they want to create for themselves and um i want to show people that you know it's so much more fun out here even when you go through something hard you know i think the hard thing makes life amazing so yeah. Well, yeah. that's that's part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show because the the original interview with Chris that I that I heard you with mm. was the subject matter and the experiences that you went through are so dire and so unfortunate and yet your personality and your you're positively bubbly. <laughs> and um and, and the the work that you're doing with Moxie Global that we will mm. we'll get into maybe yeah. near the end of the podcast is you've really turned something dark into something positive for other people i hope so yeah and that that's a really beautiful thing you know but i'll be really honest i mean i didn't have a clue that that's what i was doing i was just reeling from one event to the next when i was at that age i had no idea that i was going to survive that i didn't think farther ahead than the next hour and i could i was i was not a very i was a good person but i was still i did a lot of shady things you were a teenager as a teenager i did a lot of shady things teenagers are terrible people (laughs) right sorry to our teen audience (laughs) um so so what what happened to you next after so you you woke up in the bathtub i woke up in the bathtub uh and you know to make a long story short they dropped me off on the side of the road and left me there in the rain uh completely drugged out of my tree i had no idea at that point really what had happened to me i was just getting these random flashbacks at that point and um yeah I made it into a pizza shop and I just sat there and these girls I guess I guess they took pity on me I don't I don't know I must have looked pretty scary from the outside um and so they gave me a ride to a friend's place and I crashed passed out on the couch up at my friend's place and then the next morning I went to my mom's and that was a whole other can of worms to open up did you tell her what had happened No, I was really scared to talk to my mom about what had happened because I had been a virgin the last time I saw my mom. And my mom, you know, bless her heart, I just want to, I love my mom very much. And and I understand my mom's childhood led to a lot of decisions I myself might have not made, but that she did and that I forgive her for. And I understand them, so I just don't want anyone to get a hate on. But um, my mom had a real anger issue, and that's passed down through the family line. I mean, you know, behavioral um, it's what she learned from her parents, I guess. Yeah. So anyways, the way that she dealt with it is, uh, she'd get upset at me and call me a little cunt and a little whore and a little slut, even when I was a virgin. Um, even, even when oh, I, wow. yeah, even when I'd never been kissed. I mean, I was like 12 years old and she was calling me a little cunt and, um, called me a fucking slut when I was 15. I didn't even kiss my first, the first guy until, uh, right before I turned 16. So I was, do you, do you think that kind of the way that she talked to you led in a way for you to make these decisions to kind of like, well, if my mom thinks I'm a fucking slut or a fucking cunt, then what, what's the, to self-prophesize, why sh- yeah, why shouldn't I go down this road if people already think that I no, am? You know? No, that came later on okay. where then I wanted to punish people for what they had called me by not just proving them right, but one upping them and really taking it to the next level. At that point, um, I, I was scared to tell my mom what had happened to me because I didn't want what she had said about me to be true. So I, I couldn't tell her because then it would make what everything she had called me and everything that she had said to me 
true, right? Yeah. And I didn't want to be that person. I wanted to prove my mother wrong because I wasn't an awful child. I wasn't stupid. I was very intelligent. Um, I was very emotionally intelligent even at that age. And she did not have a high opinion of me. And, uh, and that was really hurtful because um, all I wanted was to love my mom and to be around my mom. And she didn't want anything to do with me at that point. So, yeah, I didn't want to tell her what yeah. had happened. I wanted to keep that keep that inside and I was also protecting my mom because even at that age I knew how fragile my mom was my mom was a very fragile woman emotionally she came across as an aggressive dragon and lots of people were scared of her back then but I knew that that bluster was really protecting how much pain she was in because if she would you know attack somebody before they could realize that they had hurt her then she could keep them away from her. And that was her form of protect, self-protection, was not knowing herself and not allowing other people to know her either. You know, so that was, um, I wanted to protect her and I wanted to protect myself at the same time. Yeah, and how long did you end up staying with your mom before you, you hit the road again? Oh, it couldn't have been more than a week before oh, wow. we were in a we were in a really big fight before the end of the week. We got into a really big one and um, she was starting to get physically violent with me at that point and she had always threatened she'd always blustered and i you know i perfected the run and duck but uh she finally really grabbed me one day and just throttled me um and it's it scared me and it angered me and i was just like go fuck yourself i don't i don't have to put up with this and we did not have an open door in our policy but i was allowed to walk out the door i wasn't allowed to come back but i was allowed to walk out that door if i did and that's what i did i just walked out the door packed my shit and left yeah. yeah. And where did you go? To a friend's place. Yeah. Yeah, and I stayed with her, but she was hanging out with um, the guy who had raped me, his brother. And she didn't seem to understand why that bothered me, and she heard all the things that they were saying about me. And then we got into a fight one night, and she kind of threw that in my face. And I was like, okay, well, I can't come back to town, because that's when I found out they had branded me a slut. And, you know, they call it slut-shaming now. And, uh, and it, you know, in a small town these guys were running around telling everyone that I had, you know, gotten drunk and fucked them all willingly and did everything that they could to protect themselves. And so I just left town. It was the easiest thing for me to do at that point. Yeah. 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 And did you go, wh where did you go? Did you go to your father or? No, uh, I made my way to Surrey and Vancouver. Mm -hmm. uh, I just took the bus. I, I had a best friend that lived in Vancouver and she was a partier. She was everything I wanted to be. She was wild and snarky and stylish worldly just a, just a complete badass um yeah. and she just she emulated or i wanted to just be her you know like she was she older yeah she was four years older than me so she uh, traveled the world and you know and she was there for me a i whole had a, 20 years old a whole 20 years old and at 16 that was everything and you know she had a boyfriend that They're was a real adult <laughs> totally yeah. and you know and, and she was wild and you know she was partying at that point and that she was doing all the things that i had never done Right. And um, she really helped me keep my sanity when I had to live with my mom and my dad. So I used to call her with panic attacks and anxiety because the amount of negative energy that came at me from my mom in general was it was heartbreaking to just walk around, you know, under the weight that somebody actually hates you and that that somebody's your parent. You know, so she was there a lot for me during that time in my life. And I just I looked up to her. I mean, she was everything. You know, she was a mother and a sister, and she taught me about makeup and fashion, and um, she taught me how to steal. Well, her boyfriend taught me how to steal. Uh, you know, I did my first drugs with her. Um, I had never done drugs, really. I mean, I smoked a little bit of pot in grade 8 kind of idea, but that was about it. And 
So like more hard drugs. Oh, hard. Yeah, she was into cooking and heroin and stuff. So, um, yeah, I, she introduced me to cocaine. I didn't really like it because I'm ADD. So essentially Ritalin, I think, is what uh, pretty close to speed for the average folk. And um, Ritalin doesn't even phase me. It kind of slows me down. So I didn't like cocaine because it made everything slower. And <laughs> my brain is on go, 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 24 And you like it like that. You prefer I, it to be. Yeah, passive. yeah, I do. I, I enjoy being able to hold a multitude of conversations. I enjoy being able to problem solve faster than most people can even get through the first question, you know, mm-hmm. and I make complete circles and I go off on tangents. And I think it's fun and it keeps me entertained. You know, I don't really give a fuck about what other people think. I, I'm entertained by my own thought process. I can relate. Yeah, so I, cocaine was, you know, unless you were mixing it with heroin, I really, I didn't like it. And I didn't do heroin. Um, until well after I had gotten off the streets. I just want to make that very clear that I had never touched heroin until, I want to say, almost probably six or eight months after I was able to escape from um, being trafficked. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. So yeah. how did you get introduced to uh, to the street life? Uh, was it, so it was through this friend, I imagine? Or? Well, no, because what it was is she lived in Vancouver. And so I was back and forth on the SkyTrain all the time going to go visit her and just staying with random strangers that I had met off the street that took me into their homes. They'd be like, oh, you, know, you don't have a place to stay? Oh, come stay with us. And um, I learned how to be friendly that way, by the way. I, was, I grew up, I was very introverted growing up. I was scared of my own shadow growing up. I was scared of my mom, mostly. So I didn't have a big voice probably until I ended up living on the streets. I didn't have a voice at all. So I became friendly as a means of survival. Um, mm-hmm. I became bubbly as a means of survival. And yeah, so I was just back and forth all the time. Um, and then there was always this one group at Surrey Central. And they, there was this guy that had a bike. And on the back of it, you know, he had a big boom box on the back of it. And everywhere you went, you could hear bass rattling and music. And people would be playing hacky sack. And there would be people dancing or rapping, you know, and just... Just a bunch of teenagers. Classic teenage loitering. Classic teenager loitering. Right outside the rec center. I mean, it was yep. right out of a movie, right? Yeah. Surrey Central's nice now. Have you been there recently? I have been. I was, it's totally changed. I felt lost. <laughs> yeah, I got jumped there when I was 16. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah, I had a girlfriend who lived in Surrey, and I, I dropped her off, and I was it was like must have been like 1 or 2 a.m., and I was waiting for the bus, mm-hmm. then 19, to get me back to Vancouver. And I was just standing there smoking a cigarette and some... Uh, some woman asked me for a lighter hmm. and I was like sure here you go have a lit let, let her smoke and yeah. then two minutes later some guy walks up to me like just clearly like junked out and mm. was like why are you talking to my girlfriend that's my girlfriend <laughs> I was like uh what Oops. and I had a chain because I was a little teenage yeah. douchebag mm-hmm. and he grabbed me by the chain pulled me towards him and just punched it right oh. off my body and, uh, yeah, him and his girlfriend just proceeded to kick the shit out of me for about 10 minutes. Wow. And the worst part of it, there were taxis, like, less than 50 feet away from me, like, four or five cars. Yeah. No one called the cops. No. No one did shit. The I even... cops wouldn't even get out of their vehicles. I know. At Surrey Central, if that was happening. They just keep, they just turn blind eye and keep driving. I mean, the shit yeah. that went down at Surrey Central was... Yeah. Yeah. But now it's changed. At least in the daytime, I've been down there. I drove down there to go buy a textbook, actually, for for Mm -hmm. a college course. And it's fucking, it's 
beautiful, it's huge library, now. rec yeah. center, little kids in their buggies. There's fucking mm-hmm. butterflies flying around. It's, yeah. 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 Vancouver's not the only city that's changing. No, in the, and in they the even last cleaned up years. the mall area there. So mm-hmm. it's it's not it's yeah. not a scummy place to be anymore. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. But, was, ba- but back to what happened oh, to you. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, Surrey Central was a pretty dangerous place to be back then. I and mean, the gang violence was off the charts at that point there was a lot of turf wars going on and i knew none of this by the way i actually had to learn about this i was giving i was doing an interview for or not even an interview i was just educating some people on what it's like to be trafficked and and as i'm telling the story the lady who runs the center she she starts kind of doing this backstory about which gangs i was talking about and i'm like oh i didn't know that oh i didn't know that you know because you're in the thick of it so you didn't know how dangerous it really was back then I learned that the hard way. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of gang wars going on back then. Um, there was just a girl sitting on a bench high on mushrooms, and she just looked out of it. And I had done mushrooms twice at that point, uh, and it was bad. <laughs> so I just took absolute pity on her, um, as was my nature later on, I found out. And, yeah, so I just I went and asked her if she was okay, and we started talking, and she dragged me over to meet all of her big brothers. And... Next thing you know, here I was just hanging out with this crew of kids. And uh, my next memory of that night is I ended up at a party. And uh, ironically, it was a party where they would keep the hotels after the girls had got the Johns to buy them and uh, rent them for the night. And then afterwards, everyone just show up at the and party at, at the room. Kick the John out. They'd kick the John yeah. out and then we'd just take over the room. And then the whole gang would show up and it would just be you know, like in Lollapalooza, right? And uh, and I remember being at that party. I don't remember much more after that. I remember waking up the next morning and I was going, whoa. Suddenly you have a bunch of new friends. And suddenly I have a bunch of new friends and shit, are my clothes on? Am I naked? No, we're good? Okay. Mm-hmm. You well, know. that's a little step up from that's, the last time you woke up. a step up from the last yeah. time, right? So, yeah, you'd think I'd have been a little more careful, but I was, I was even more reckless, I think, at that point because I just didn't really care what happened to me anymore because nothing could kill me as far as I was yeah, concerned. Yeah, how could it get worse? Yeah, yeah, right? Looking for a distraction as well. Absolutely. Yeah, so I started hanging out with them and we ended up we ended up day drinking once and we were at, uh, I don't want to say the name of the bar, but there was, it was in Surrey just on, on King George and there's strippers attached to it. And mm-hmm. um, we ended up at a bar drinking, totally underage. The bouncer, uh, the bartender, everybody knew who I was with at the time. Um I mean, she picked up these two guys, and I just remember getting extremely drunk, and next thing you know, she goes, oh, we're going to go to a party upstairs, we're going to go to a party upstairs, and so we went upstairs to this party, and it wasn't a party, she had brought these two guys up there, and um, the guy thought he was going to sleep with me, and I freaked right out, because I, I hadn't, since I'd been raped, I hadn't been touched or kissed or hugged or anything, and so I ran out of the room, um, panicked. And just shot out the room and she caught up to me down down in the bar and she apologized and gave me a little bit of money and I left um, and I went to Vancouver to go see my friend and that was when I spent the night with her and the next morning her boyfriend was uh, going to jail and there was some really messed up stuff going on in her life and that was the first time I ever saw her have a breakdown so here is this person that had been you know the leader of, of of uh, my debauchery, I guess. And, um, and here she was having a meltdown and she couldn't do anything without drugs and she's at work and her boyfriend's about to go to jail and she can't go home. And 
And I just realized for the first time that I couldn't turn to her with what had just happened. And I couldn't talk to her about what had just happened the day before. And so I left and I, I headed back and I was going to go stay uh, at another place that had gotten a little hairy with, uh, they'd been breaking out guns and, you know, I didn't know anything about this kind of stuff. This was, this was all very new to me and these people broke out guns. So and I you had, grew up on a farm. I grew up on a farm. I grew up on a farm doing 4-H and riding horses. What's 4-H? Uh, stands for hand, heart, something, something. I don't remember. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you raise, you raise animals up and then you show them and you might sell them for slaughter at the end. Okay. So, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh, a bit of heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, heartbreaking yeah, yeah, yeah. shit. Yeah. Old yeller. I, I was, I was really comfortable around death at an early age. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, you know, I'd grown up on a farm. I really didn't know a whole lot about this. And my dad had been a drug addict and, you know, I'd grown up with hints of everything and my mom telling me bad stories about him, but you know, it's still very limited. I mean, I hadn't been around guns. I hadn't been, you know, I didn't know my dad was a drug dealer when I was growing up. So it's not like I knew that the people that were, I was around growing up were dangerous. I didn't know that growing up, you know, cause you're just a kid. So I didn't, I didn't realize that, you know, I, th- I think if you were to get into a little bit of the psychology into vibration and to really childhood patterning, you'd probably recognize that I was living out certain subconscious patterning that had been programmed into me as a child realistically that I sought out the vibration of what I had already known yeah um, well you, you formed to fit whatever container you're in yeah you know? and, and if you were at your dad's house at an early age I imagine even stuff before you even had conscious memories were priming you to be sort mm-hmm. of comfortable exposed to that sort of well they say that yeah they say that in utero to up to the age of seven you're forming your subconscious and the subconscious runs a pattern that you then play out as you age right so if that was the type of people that i didn't know that i had grown up around so when my mom and my dad were together they split up because my dad's uh whole crew got busted so my dad and them they'd been big cocaine dealers at that point and they got busted the crew got busted and my mom left him as a result of that she said you're going down i don't want our kid to get taken away and thrown into foster care so i'm leaving you need to make a choice and he chose not to not to go with her that's her version of the story and he has a different version of the story i'm sure but that was that was the version i was told as a child so i did grow up around that environment for you know intermittently right for a period as a child and then whenever I'd have to go visit him I remember him not coming home or if he came home it was a big party kind of idea so I mean if you were to take into consideration that I might have been reliving childhood patterning right that I'd been conditioned to that I might have sought out people that also emulated and I can't remember which doctor it said but you in partners you seek out the negative qualities of your most dominant parent so it does seem kind of fitting that I was drawn to certain so interesting. Certain types of people, yeah. yeah. So, I wonder what the evolutionary function of that would be. Well, there's... Don't... You mean you have to fact check the shit out That's of this, okay. by the way. Uh, so there are neurons and there's certain parts of your brain that um, they... I don't want to say they create, but the people that you hang out with, we, we actually adapt to them. We learn to mimic them. Right. Uh, so maybe a tribal thing. It's, it's definitely a tribal thing, yeah. but it's, it's these also are the type of, these are your people. Yeah, yeah. Like we become the most, we, we become those we most hang out with. So like, let's say that, you know, you hang out with five people that are drug addicts. At some point you're going to touch drugs, you know, 
Um, if you hang out with five people that are intellectual, at some point you're going to pick up a book, right? You're going to become part of that circle as a way of fitting in, you know? So um, I would say that I definitely, number one, been primed for it. And also epigenetic, if you, if you look back at the history of my family in general, um, you would find that there was a lot of badassery going on, you know? So I had been raised, I mean, even my mom, when she was younger, I mean, she was a complete badass. She she brought skunks home. That sounds weird, but you know, she brought down, she brought back like random animals and she did for food or for, no, for pets. she made them pets and stuff. Yeah. She, she had a skunk and she, he used to run away and she'd drag him back by his tail. His name was Pepe oh Le Pew. Your mom is brave. My mom is very brave. And she also redid, she redid cars. I mean, she redid Corvettes and she used to drag race. I mean, my aunt told me stories about how my mom used to pull up, and my aunt was only 15, and my mom would pull up in this crazy cool Corvette that she had completely redone, and all of my aunt's friends would go off with my mom. My mom would go drag racing with all these people. Like, there was no, you know, there was... Your mom was that friend. My mom was that friend, yeah. yeah. My, and my mom was a model, and she was gorgeous, and she was funny, and she was, and she was heartbroken because her dad had died, and he had been her best friend in her whole world. So she really, um, she left home at 16 as well. Like I said, so there was a lot of things that my mom did at the same age that I I'm ended seeing up some doing. patterns. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. You know, I was struck by a lot of patterns. Um, so, yeah. So if you, were, if you were to look at the history, I, I think I sought out that which I had already been introduced to at a very young age. And, and also tribalism, you know, I was looking for love and these people were there. Community. And, and you've been rejected by your tribe, mm -hmm. your mom. The last time you'd seen your mom, you had a domestic incident yeah and then and my the door yeah my biological father was just you know as wild as the ma the hatter is mad kind mm. of idea and yeah yeah so i met these people and when i realized that you know the people that i thought were the most solid my friends i thought were the most solid you know one found out that she had a serious um disorder going on and you know another one she had her own issues going on and she couldn't she wasn't allowed to kind of hang out with me and so and she was hanging out with my ex and then my other one I found out that she's you know deeper into the drugs and way more fucked up than I had ever imagined so now I'm really on my own you know I don't have any backup and then I was uh heading back to through Surrey and I hadn't seen this this girl that had approached me that I'd party with and and she saw me and she cried out my name from across a parking lot, you know, and it was kind of Were like... Were you looking for them? No, no, I was, I was hoofing it to go spend the night in another place because it was getting dark. It was like sundown or something and she just screamed my name, Rahan, across the parking lot and I kind of turned around and looked and she ran at me and just threw herself into my arms and it was just... Mushroom this, girl? Yeah, mushroom no. girl. Yeah, it was just this, you know, it was like a sense of belonging. Like here was this person who acted like they'd been looking for me and, you know, and I, it felt nice to be to be wanted, I guess. So, um, yeah, I went back with her and, and that was kind of the, the introduction to the gang that I didn't know was a gang An introduction to, you know, that, that was me being recruited is what that was. You know, she had tested the waters, introduced me to her family, took me out partying, tried to get me into a hotel room with guys to see how I would react. Um, yeah. And then she just kind of stuck it out and brought me into the gang after that. So. Yeah. So you guys went back to the house, the, the apartment that you guys were staying in. Uh, yeah, I can't remember which came first. If we, I think we went out. I think I think I went and spotted for her. I can't remember if we went back to the place. I'm pretty sure we. Went so spotting is watching your friend while she's turning a trick, just yeah. to make sure she's okay. Yeah. So I went and and she just started grooming me by having me spot for her. So you know, eventually she told me that she was a hooker, and 
I remember her looking at me like I was a complete moron. I was like, huh? <laughs> like, I don't even, what? Like, like pretty woman? I don't understand. Um, oh, jeez. Yeah, it was bad. It was, I was really naive. And so, yeah, so she started having me spot for her. So she would get into vehicles, and I would write down the license plate number and the color of the car and whether or not I could see one or two people in there with her. Uh, she took me into New West, actually, to do this. Um, we went to a lot of spots, a lot of different spots, and then and then she brought me back to hang out with the gang, and we went and stayed at the at the apartment that they called The Rock. So mm-hmm. it was uh, a one-bedroom apartment with up to 15 teenagers at any given point in a time. A rotating cast. Oh, of... absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it was good times. Yeah, so what was the kind of social hierarchy of the gang like? Was there any, or was it quite... There was, yeah. there was a social hierarchy, and with with the girls, it was always rotating. With the girls, it was it was always rotating because, because um, I and I don't want to be cliche and be like, well, because that's how girls are. But there is actually science behind that to prove that girls are actually always vying for dominance against each other. It's uh, pink aggression and everything. Um, and with guys, it was just set. You know, you kind of the guys knew where they stood, and they knew kind of where they were at in the scene of things. But the girls were always rotating on, you know, who was with what guy or who was, you know, friends with so and so, and kind of just where they stood in the group at that point. So, mm-hmm. yeah, um, I just came in as an extra, you know, just a random extra in the background that slept on the couch every now and again because I had nowhere else to go. Yeah, and uh, and the. The mushroom, I like that mushroom girl. Uh, mushroom girl, she she was the ballsy one of the group. The, a lot of the other girls were a lot quieter. Uh, but mushroom girl, later on, you would come to learn that she wasn't as favored as what she projected. And that she was the recruiter. And she was, I don't want to say that she was born to be a madam. Because that's almost derogatory in a sense. But she did end up becoming a madam. And she was really geared towards dominating other girls and recruiting them and bringing them in and then turning them out to make money off of them. That was right from the get-go. She was, self-survival was first for her. So, and she exploited kind of everyone around her in an effort to stay on top herself. Yeah, so yeah. She, she was on a path. She was definitely on a path, yeah. Yeah, and so eventually it, it worked on you, though. You were slowly, over time, exposed to these kind of ever-increasing sort of levels of, of prostitution. and Because mm-hmm. of, you, were, you were an absolute no I was from an the absolute no yeah. from the beginning. Yeah. yeah they, they tried to get me in on one, like I said, I ran from the room. I had yeah, no exactly. idea what was even taking place. I just knew I didn't want anyone to touch me. And, uh, you know, and then eventually, yeah, they just kind of wore me down. You know, so first it started off with me watching her get into vehicles and going off and then listening to the stories that she was telling me. And then it was, um, eventually it kind of began, well, will you come with me? You know, and so then I went with her, and I'd stay outside the room while she did whatever it is that she did, and stealing everything from the John if we were brought back to his place. And then eventually it was, oh, come into the room with me kind of idea. And then at some point, um, you know, and, and I, didn't, I did a paper on this uh, to understand the, the psychology behind it. And actually it was biological instinct that was the final tipping point for me to, to push over. So... I biologically, and I, of course, I didn't understand this at the time, but I was afraid that if I didn't go with her, that I would be cast out. And that to say no to her at any given point in time could mean expulsion. And that, that you come back to tribalism at that point, right? So I didn't want to be cast out. To be cast out meant possible death for me at this point. So 
when she said she was going somewhere and one of my friends had come and found me and found out who I was hanging out with and tried to take me, that was the tipping point for me. Cause I was like, no, I don't want to go with you. You've already turned on me two or three times. I can't live with you. You can't take care of me. These people are fucked, but they're solid. They, exactly. Yeah. These people, you know, they have my back and nothing's going to happen to me in their care. So I believed at that point. And, um, so yeah, so she just said she was going and I was like, whoa, 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 hold up. I'll come with you. And I think right then and there is I just made the decision and it was like, oh, you know, there was a, there was a poem that was told to me again and again and again when I was a little girl. And it was, uh, there once was a girl who had a little curl right in the middle of her forehead. And when she was good, she was very, very good. But when she was bad, she was horrid. And as a child, this had been told to me over and over and over. And that poem, I remember it came up in my head and I just thought to myself, I'm like, you guys think I'm bad? You want, you want bad? I'll fucking show you bad and I will make you pay for it. And that was, that was a turning point for me. I was very angry, just very, very angry. And the brainwashing was all there. You know, here was these people who were feeding me. They were housing me. They were clothing me. They were my friends. Uh, they were giving me everything that I needed. And to watch my friend walk out into the night with no protection just flicked a switch inside of me that... There was no coming back from I couldn't let her do that and so I went out with her and was like no I'll do this thing with you because mm -hmm. if I don't you could get hurt or maybe if I don't I could get hurt yeah mm -hmm. yeah so then you ended up uh how, how did you end up going downtown or, or go or going to East Hastings Street where because he said uh, we, we actually went for a walk around there, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. there right before we came here uh, was that where you guys were always working or were no. you, cause it sounds like you were starting off like in Surrey yeah. and then when you made that decision to make the jump into going onto the streets, that's when you guys were taken down to East Hastings. Yeah. So yeah. when they recruited me and they started, when they actually turned me out, uh, they were just prepping me by working me in New West and I went out a few times with her and I wouldn't do you know, and, and I don't know why this is important to me. I think it's, uh, probably just probably has something to do with my level of discomfort still at, at certain things that happened, you know? Um, but for some strange reason, it is important to me to still be able to say, even though it doesn't matter. And I intellectually understand that, that I was only doing oral at that point. I really wouldn't let anybody touch me. I didn't want to be, um, hugged or kissed or, you know, like my friends could hug me, but I didn't want to be touched by men. And so oral was okay for me because somehow that was taking back my power in a weird way. Um, and so I went out and I would only perform oral and that was in New West. And then there was just, there was a bunch of us girls and turns out that everybody that was there was a hooker or was on the fast track to becoming a hooker. You know, there was a 13 year old, there was a 15 year old, the mushroom girl was 15. Turns out I was 16. Another girl was 16. Um, and there was another girl that was brought in. And so next thing you know, you know, they had a little harem going on inside this inside this apartment so what were the guys doing that's what <laughs> i want to know video games oh geez yeah they were playing video games they took us shopping i there was uh, a great big with shopping. your money oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah totally oh, wow. with our money yeah um yeah they took us shopping there was a great big shopping expedition to uh what's the metro town metro town, metro town. yeah yeah it was Yikes. a big deal it was a, yeah. it was a big deal when we went there and just 
cleaned out the the mall. Yeah. Uh, there's a whole bunch of us, and we kind of all ended up going with the supervisor, so to speak. And mm-hmm. uh, what and do you mean by supervisor? Like, well, they just the guys took care of us. You oh, know, the guy. Oh, the yeah. men you're talking about. The, yeah, yeah. So that was their role. So I know. I know. I said this earlier, but it, it, it's like lions. The, mm-hmm. the females go off and do the all the actual and hunting, all the actual hunting, and the guys so strut well. around and. Yeah. Beat their chests. Peacocks. Yeah. 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 They, fight each other. They're they, there to fight each other. They really were. <laughs> yeah. They played a lot of video games. They drank a lot of old English. They smoked a lot of cigarettes. 40 ounce. Oh. Oh, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. I can still smell it. And, and just that brown paper bag. You know, you can just, I can still hear it crinkling yeah. as they like slide Living out down. the rap music video. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah. We, they, the guys were just around. They were just around and, and, you know, their job was supposedly was to protect us, but more than anything, they really did. There was this one time, uh, Mushroom Girl and I, we, we got picked up and guys actually wanted to take us out on a real date. And we came back, we were all excited and we came back to the apartment and we're like, we're going out on a date. And all the guys freaked right out. And they just lost their shit and they're like, what? They didn't want you to be romance. Yeah, yeah, no. And and they were really, but they were really protective of us. And what happened is, is we got ready for the date and the guys all grabbed every weapon that they could. And there was, that was a lot of weapons. We're talking like machetes and baseball bats and knives, anything that they clubs, anything that was available. And they marched us down. Cause these guys showed up and parked uh, this, this vehicle outside the, the hotel or not the hotel, but the, the, the rock, the rock. And, and the guys all came out and they lined up and it was, like a scene out of a movie. It was oh, like to intimidate them? To like totally Back by them. 11. They, and that's exactly the shit that they pulled. And they're sitting there and they're, you know, they're whacking their baseball bats into their hands. And they're staying so cool. there with like a machete and stuff. And the guys were scared to take us. They're going, oh, yeah, I we bet. don't really want to take you. And I felt so loved and so protected at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to go out on a date with, with two guys and to have this whole crew behind me that's threatening to kill anyone who hurts me. You know, so and that... that that kind of stuff was breeds loyalty. It absolutely breeds loyalty. They which, have your back, literally. Yeah, literally have your back, which you will find out just how just how intense the loyalty was uh, was created or born inside of me after those kinds of events yeah. from them. So yeah. yeah, so um, they took us all to Metro Town Mall, and you know, each girl kind of went off with one or two guys, and and they we all came back shopping full of clothes we had bags and bags and stuff and hair and nails and everything was done and i just remember i'd never got to go to prom and you know i was 16 and um you dropped out of school at I that dropped point out of yeah school. totally yeah. Yeah. yeah there was no going to school when you don't know where you're going to spend the next night yeah. you didn't have a place to sleep other than the streets and i saw actually i should backtrack i saw my dad right before all this happened too my dad had hepatitis c he got it at a party where they've been using needles and of course he didn't say that. And he was down in Vancouver. This is right this is right around the time when my friend had the meltdown and I'd already met Mushroom Girl, by the way. So this is actually a key. And he was walking down the street and I just happened to recognize him in his I think it was like called a Fedora hat. You know, he looked really gangster. He was very gangster looking. His big long drapey coat and his walking cane because he had a back injury. And I followed him into this hotel down on Davy Street, it was a really expensive fancy one. Um, and this trial had put him, had him his girlfriend up and he wouldn't let me stay with him. Wouldn't let me spend the night. And, and I was sleeping on the streets at that point. And I literally, I was so angry at him that I went down and sat outside of his hotel on a piece of cardboard with a homeless man 
And I just sat there with the homeless man all night waiting for my dad to come out so I could shame him, you know, for, for not helping me, for not giving me a place to stay and for being so incredibly selfish that he could sit up in his warm apartment, you know, that was given to him for this trial because he had fucked up and done drugs and gotten hepatitis C, but couldn't tell anybody that that's what had happened. I was one of the only people who knew that secret. And, um, and that was another real reason why, you know, the gang was able to pull me in the way that they were is because I had, you know, just had that huge fight with my mom. My dad had literally kicked me out of his hotel room, you know, because he couldn't keep me there. You know, my friends having a meltdown. So there, there was like a lot. There was a trifecta a of forces pushing you towards pushing these people. Yeah. yeah. So then to turn around and to have, to have an actual parent kick you out of their hotel room. And so you're sleeping on cardboard outside of their, on Davy Street. And then to have an entire group of men stand there with, you know, weapons of mass destruction, threatening anyone who hurts you. That's really, I mean, that's a heady feeling that, that creates, um, that's the kind of thing people fantasize about, you know, that level of backing for sure. Yeah. 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 And it creates all those warm fuzzies, right? I mean, so in, in a female's brain, especially, um, I've read a lot of books and I misquote a lot of books by the way, but as long as you get it half right, I, I, you know? I get, it get the, half right. the spirit, <laughs> the spirit of yeah. it, right? Um, in a female's brain, the more that, especially in her teenage years, the more that she talks, the more she feels that she is connected to an individual, whether it be another female or you know a boy, it actually releases uh, dopamine, oxytocin, and another one in her brain, and the hit that she receives of the the drugs is the equivalent to the hit that a heroin addict or a crack addict receives. So they're always chasing the high. Mm-hmm. It is the, um, it's the second most, it's the second strongest uh, feeling a person can have outside of an orgasm, essentially, mm-hmm. is what's happening. So at this point, here I am, 16 years old, and I am living in a house of people who want nothing more than to include me and talk to me. So I am actually a drug addict at this point, just not on real drugs. They're not on street drugs. I'm a drug addict that I'm addicted to oxytocin and dopamine yeah. and serotonin That's being that my brain is being flooded with, right? So again, I'm sorry, I want to circle back. My big reason for going with these people was at the minute that I thought about not being with them when my friend tried to get me to come back to her place, my... Uh, all of you know the serotonin, the oxytocin, and the dopamine that that dropped out, and my cortisol levels raised, which means that I went into immediate anxiety at the idea of not being around these people who were feeding me the attention that I needed to be as high as a kite emotionally, right? Yeah. So, um, and meanwhile, the old friends are hanging out with the guys who raped you, yeah, and spreading all of these nasty rumors about you and mm-hmm. stuff. So, well, and, yeah, yeah and no, that's super listening. understandable. Yeah, so it was just, it was easier to go with the people who had my back at that point. Yeah. So yeah, so uh, so I started working for them, and so I was just literally told one day, "Hey, uh, no one's working for a little bit here. No one's working. We've got a block. We're getting some. We're getting a block down on Hastings Street." We just have to secure it, and you guys aren't allowed to work right now. And we were on lockdown for, I don't even know how long, I can't remember. It was, I want to say, minimum of a week, where the girls, we weren't allowed to leave the house. It was, there was no going out, there was no doing anything. Why do you think that was? And who was giving you the these orders? Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. Mm-hmm. So later on, I found out that there was actually people that were in jail that were instructing the people in the house, in the hierarchy. 
So there was one guy in particular that I had a real triangle love affair going on with and not, I wasn't physically involved with him. I was emotionally involved with, with you him. and him and another guy or another girl. Uh, it ended up becoming another guy because of my inability to trust. And so I, I was being pursued on, uh, on several fronts, on several fronts, yeah. you know, it's called the boyfriending and yeah, right. So yeah. You, you have a guy that's pursuing you to lock you down. Plus you've got the friendships going on. Um, and I was really, really falling heavily for the guy that would have been, I guess, the head runner of it all. And that scared me. I couldn't, I couldn't commit to that. I was terrified yeah. of Well, him. the last time you'd opened up, like, sort of emotionally to your yeah. first boyfriend. I had been raped and stuff. Yeah. And plus this is guy, this guy that's leading this group is sitting there telling me that I don't belong there. That I shouldn't be there. That, uh, that that's not who I am. And that enraged me. Because I needed to belong somewhere. And so for this person to come along and tell me I don't belong, it was so hurtful because I, if I didn't belong there with them and I didn't belong at home with my parents and I didn't belong with any of my friends, where was I supposed to go? So I assimilated and I became the very thing that he told me I was not in an effort to be a part of something. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So um, they just came up and told us, yeah, we're going to get you a block. Down on Hastings Street. It's where you're going to be working. Uh, you just got to wait a little bit. And that came from the people in jail. Yeah. 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 And I assume this would have been down here in like uh, Hastings' main area where the kind of the trade is now. Right. But as we found out at the beginning, um, it's actually uh, more like Hastings and Nanaimo. Yeah. Actually, the place that you told me to meet you mm -hmm. was the 7-Eleven a block away <laughs> from my old high school. So that was kind of shocking. Right. Yeah. Because I grew up around there. And I, I guess... Well, I, w I was quite young in 98. I was about six years old. I, I wasn't really privy to what the hell was going on down right. there, but I, I found it pretty surprising. Mm -hmm. But um, so what were some of your experiences like on the street? Ooh, what were some of my experiences like on the street? Mm -hmm. Well... Because it had been kind of normalized to you Yeah, at to that everything point. was... There was nothing that really shocked me. I mean, even to this day, people think that if they come up and hug me or touch me, that they're going to freak me out or it's going to trigger some strange response to me. To this day, I am more comfortable with a stranger walking up and slapping my ass than I am with somebody kind of inching up to me and being like, oh, hey, and popping out from around a corner. Like, mm. popping up from around a corner and keeping your distance freaks me out because I'm like, whoa. What are you doing? <laughs> what, what are you up What's to? What's the motive here? Yeah, yeah. Whereas someone just coming up and giving me a hug or slapping me on the ass or, you know, cuffing me on the shoulder that to me is still normal yeah um, well that's how you were socialized with this group i imagine is. there was a lot of ass slapping there and... was yeah there was no bubble there was there was no private space allowed. well you said it was a one bedroom <laughs> it was a one bedroom with like people. up to 15 people at any given point in time Yikes. yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, we slept in like doggy piles i mean there was no orgies or anything like that going on but well there's some people having sex in the room while other people were awake, but you know, no one was joining in on that yeah. and stuff. Yeah, it was just a very open household. And, you know, I actually really appreciate that aspect of education, to be honest with you, you know, because you learned, I learned there that ultimately, even though I was terrified of sex, it was actually still not something to be terrified of. You know, I, I had a really in-depth sexual education at that point everything i knew i'd learned from a book or a farm animal essentially up till then so i think i'd given one blow job at the age of i think right before i turned 16 just out of curiosity mm -hmm. and and i got my instructions from a book you know so 
everything I learned, I learned through this gang and they were really warm. And it's, it was the kind of family that kids grow up, they dream about growing up if you've grown up isolated. You know, it was the kind of family where nothing was taboo, nothing was off limits, nothing was too much, nobody was too loud, there was no censorship. You know, you couldn't do anything that could ever drive you apart from this from this group, right? Every everything, you were just encouraged to be louder and crazier and wilder and do more and talk more and you know. Yeah, yeah. teenage dream. An absolute teenage yeah. dream for sure. Yeah. So, what was your relationship to police like at Ooh. that time? Because I imagine. You know, actually, it's funny you should ask you should ask that because the last couple nights have been um, I've been having nightmares of police, and my most recent nightmare was uh, actually being gang raped by police, being held down and mm-hmm. raped by them. And you know, so you could interpret that in a lot of different ways. You could say that that maybe is a relationship with authority, or you could think about the fact that perhaps, um, you know, I had such a, a strange relationship with police at that time in my life that they represented people who didn't protect me, you know, in a dream. I mean, I'm sure there's like a hundred different ways you could take that. But yeah, I've just started consciously dealing, I think, with some of that stuff that happened that subconsciously I had been um, suppressing for yeah. a lot of years. So I feel like a lot of people are going to be surprised because you were like a, a, a very clear youth at risk, youth prostitute on the street Mm -hmm. what most people who aren't in that world would assume is that the police are out there handing out coffees and trying (laughs) to give people like are you okay honey like do you need a do you need a enroll in like social programs that's what we that's what we like to assume but maybe you can expand on that yeah that's like a dreamer's right dreamer's life uh cops were they were not cool they, you know, we were scared of cops. I mean, I had definitely been taught to fear police, um, but they, police did nothing to help, to help their reputation amongst young, young people at all on the streets. They, I think the cops were scared. Number one, the cops were scared of the gangs. They were scared of uh, the blocks. They were scared of the girls. And a lot of them abused the girls, so they'd come by and you had to do favors um, in order to not be arrested. For the cops. Yeah, yeah, for the cops oh. and stuff. Yeah, it was pretty dicey back then. I do you think a... they were involved in some of the money? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because you said there was a bit of a, like a greater web of organization. There of, was... Like, you guys were at the bottom of it, mm-hmm. and then there was a whole industry surrounding it. Yeah, that and... I didn't know anything about until much later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So some palms are getting greased. I, yeah. I, I don't know how many palms were getting greased, but I know that a lot of the girls, and to keep off, you know, to keep out of jail or for other reasons... Um, they, you know, definitely traded favors with the police or they were raped by police. I do know that. Um, I was really lucky. I was arrested once and it was, I wasn't, I actually wasn't, I was dressed like a hooker probably. I was pretty beat up. I'd actually just been beaten up by a pimp. I'd gotten my ass handed to me by this guy and the police arrested me the next day. Um, I think it was like the next day. Yeah. And they didn't even ask questions. You know, they didn't. They knew I was underage. They just arrested me. They brought me in. They had me. I gave them a fake name. They called my aunt. She told them she knew who I was, and she didn't come get me. They didn't drop me off with her. They uh, they just hauled my, my ass to, um, I guess, a halfway house or something uh, and dropped us off outside the door. 
Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. So I mean, that was my one interaction with cops. I was beat up. You could tell I was beat up. You knew I was underage. You knew. And, and, and I wasn't doing drugs. I did not look like a drug addict. I had no track marks. I had no twitches. You know, I was fed and clothed. You know, there was not a lot to say that, um, to say that I was out there, you know, misusing anything. Yeah. But yeah. No, it, it reminds me of something. Uh, I was listening to a podcast on, on homelessness recently mm-hmm. And the guys hosting had a really interesting point about because there's enough studies out there now where we know that it's actually cheaper to house the homeless than it is to leave them on the streets, taking up all this energy for, you know, uh, paramedics coming and helping them Mm -hmm. and all that sort of stuff. But the reason that homelessness still exists is as incentive to keep people working. To, so people know that if you stop working, this is what happens. Society will abandon you and you will end up like these people. And no one's going to come for you. That's and really that's really dark, right? But I'd really never dark. thought about that before. But especially in Vancouver, we like one of the richest cities in North America mm-hmm. where there has been all of these intensive studies on homelessness. We, we know that there are better routes than leaving people on the streets. And mm-hmm. just from what you're selling, t- telling me about the cops and uh, their treatment of you, it seems institutionalized. It yeah. seems like there's something there doesn't make sense. And I'm not qualified to really speak on it aside from that. But right. that's just a little bit of conspiracy for for the listeners there. Well, there's a couple of different really cool things, points there. Um, first of all, uh, I think it's, I want to say it's in Switzerland where they actually decriminalized the drugs and they brought people in and they said listen, we'll put you up in a home, we'll take care of you, we will give you as much drugs as you want, as many times a day as you want, and you guys come in here and we will administer it to you. And what they found is that... For free. For free. For free. And what they found is that people came off the drugs, that they actually went out and got jobs and became productive working class citizens again. And that it had to do with not having a home and not having the options is what drove them deeper and spiraling and where that's where where they would stay a drug addict and that's where they would become more and more and more dependent upon the yeah. drug. Whereas when it was administered to them and given to them and when they were given the help. The care. The when they community. were given the care and the community and they had a place to go to, that's actually what decreased homelessness. It decreased the use of drug addicts. Uh, it, it just leveled everything right up. So that was actually a really neat yeah. study and I'm pretty sure... That was done in Switzerland. Um, I think you're right. I think I know exactly what you're talking about. And uh, yeah, I think I even, yeah, it's because it's, it's less about the, the, the drug and it's more about people are, people are alcoholics. People Mm -hmm. are heroin users. It does have some, some physical dependency, but usually they're doing it because something in that hierarchy of needs isn't being met. They don't have so, they don't have a solid social circle. They don't, they don't feel Loved because people Rat who are Park, 1970. Yeah, because people who are loved mm-hmm. and have things going for them, they don't dive into that sort of disassociative right. cycle of. Uh, They're of, not looking to hide from anything. They're not scared of their feelings. You know they learn that they can speak up and they're not storing all of this stuff inside yeah. withering away. Yeah. If you're loved, you don't want to be numbed out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 So, and then yeah, the whole cop thing. Um, yeah, that was that was rough. Cops, I was terrified of police officers, and and I had been, I think, also from a very young age as well. You know, I mean, I was taught to kind of fear them through my parents, and then you know, living on the streets, you're taught to fear them, and then, you know, back then also, I mean, the laws have changed now. So the law back then was that if 
you got caught working that the girls got arrested and the pimps and the johns walked away scot-free there was nothing that mm. held anyone else accountable i was the one who would get arrested i'm the one who would go to jail i'm the one who would get sent to juvie right i was the one taking all the risk even though i was out there because i had been tricked recruited and then trafficked right it seems like you know more evidence of the kind of institutionalization of the because prostitution is around forever mm -hmm. you know and law enforcement has been around for almost forever right. you know in civilization's history so i'm i'm assuming there's sort of you know <laughs> there's reasons behind it well you'd have to go back actually so i'm reading this book called shakti woman's mm -hmm. right yeah, here we're talking about that yeah and even before that um you know you'd go back to say ishtar in the times of babylon um where women it's i'm pretty sure that it was women who actually created civilization in the sense that women were the ones that began to seed and plant and you know so and they're actually the ones that well the men were off pretending to hunt yeah, yeah. well the men were off doing something else yeah. women actually were the ones that they're, they've learned that uh that were creating the civilization so to speak and ishtar and the temple of ishtar that had to do with the high priestesses and so and there's a lot of there was a lot of fear around women because of uh, their periods, right? Menstruation. So men were afraid of how much power a woman had through menstruation. And yet that was used, that blood was used and first rite ceremonies were used and sex was used as a way of being in tune with mother nature and working with the seasons and growing crops and, and fertility and whatnot. So when you had the Temple of Ishtar, you had the the king and or you know whatever was going on back then and he would actually have sex with the priestess on certain holy days right and it was the mixture of semen and blood that they would give back into the earth in order to um renew it and then you had men that were coming back in from war and and all sorts of so every woman took part in the temple as a you know priestess and they would all give back um in, in the way that they would have sex for, you know, for money that was given to the temple itself. Mm, as a part of, like, a religious, right? It wasn't for them. It was prostitution for... It was prostitution for civilization, is uh, my understanding of it. Yeah. But what was interesting is that prostitution was actually used as a way to civilize, to re-civilize men that were coming back from war and bloodlust, right? Mm. So it, it was a way to bring them back. Unto a woman's touch. Yes, yeah. exactly, and to soften them. And, so, and then, of course, you had the, the lowercase horse back there in the horarchy, um, you know, and they had, like, the street horse and whatnot. Yeah. But prostitution itself was a sacred holy rite, and it was, sex was not, sex was something that was revered. It was something that was sacred. Yeah. You know? Well, views um, on sex are so culturally bound. We're all fucked up by the Judeo-Christian yeah. model that we all kind of, you know, got instilled in us well, without actually, uh, our consent or knowledge. I was going to say, what's really funny about the, the Judeo-Christian thing is that, you know how you, uh, when you go to church and they take the wafer and drink the blood? Mm-hmm. Actually, mm. <laughs> that... Think that uh, might be a pagan thing that it's, they co-opted? Uh, yes, it was a pagan thing that they co-opted yeah. from when the blood and the semen and the women used to go out and make moon cakes so croissants they would make moon cakes and it was the blood was actually the holy blood of menstruation because it carried the most power and the menstruation used to be used and given back into plants and our food because it actually helped us to grow 
mm-hmm. stronger and better. Um, but yeah, so circling back, yes. So the Judeo-Christian yeah. Christianity stuff, the eating of the wafer and the drinking of the holy blood actually circles back yeah. uh, to just another pagan ritual that yeah. was... Well, that Jack. was an informative tangent. Ah, sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> full of really random information. No, that's like great. That. That's yeah. fine. Um, so back to modern times. Back to modern times. Modern times. times. Yeah. Um, how much money would you make generally per Ooh. per client per trick? Because I remember in that first podcast here, you were there were high, there's high track, yeah. mid track, high track, low track. Could you explain what that is and sort of sure. place yourself within it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Low track was uh, girls that were down and out. They were, you know, uh, they were doing drugs in order to survive their trauma, most of them. And I know everyone thinks out there, and this is a huge misconception, everybody thinks, oh, they're, you know, they're fucking and they're prostituting themselves. They're hookers because they just need drugs. It's the other way around. They're doing drugs because of what the trauma they've been through. They're doing drugs to step out of reality because life is too hard. And drugs create a... um, a euphoria that's long lasting in the neurons that allows people to go on and on and on thinking that they are wrapped up in a warm, fuzzy blanket. So when they uh, basically are in so much pain that they can't breathe without that, without that blanket on them. So then you have mid track, which is where I started out at. I started out at mid track and that's um, at, at the time when I was out there, it was back in 1998. So uh, mid-track would have been, say, $80 for a blowjob, 80 to 100 up to 120 maybe more, depending on the person. And when I was out there working, it was like, you know, 100 to 200 and up for a lay. Just depended on who you brought in, what you were willing to sacrifice. And how much you could upsell and them. How I imagine you you'd upsell. feel it out. Yeah, yeah. I was kind a of car really, they up really in. good waitress later on because of oh, my wow. upsell skills. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so you just definitely upsell. So, like, let's say you get in a car and the guy wants a blowjob and you guys negotiate at, say, $100 and say, yep, yeah, sure, blowjob, $100. And then you get going and then you kind of upsell and you go, oh, well, I'll take my top off for, you know, an extra 20 bucks. And then it's, oh, well, I'll take off my bra for an extra 20 bucks. And, you know, next thing you know, you're up to a $200 blowjob and the guy's like, jerking himself off in the car and he can't figure out how this happened <laughs> and mm. you're just like thanks bye yeah yeah what was your average clientele like everything under the sun or was there generally a kind of you know it was it was it was a lot of different it depended too on the area that i was in so later on i was kidnapped by another pimp um well that's where the loyalty comes in mm. uh so at a later on point the rock where we lived at the people that were running the drug operation out of it kicked in the door and threatened to kill everybody because we were drawing too much attention because we were having way too many parties there. Why did they call it The Rock? I'm not sure if we went over that already. It was called The Rock because they sold cocaine out of the place. They sold cocaine and crack out of the place. The Russians. Yeah. Yeah. I was told it was the Russians. I never shook hands with a Russian. Were you You there when they busted in the door? I was not there when they busted in the door. I was uh, getting pizza or something for dinner, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I had actually already told them that I no longer wanted to be a hooker. I had said that I didn't want to be doing this because a bunch of things had happened at that point that were just, I couldn't cope with it. Didn't and you nearly get abducted at some yeah, point? Yeah, yeah. Maybe so we could talk about that. Definitely. There was a whole string of events that led to me wanting out. Um, you know, first of all, it wasn't really I wanted where I wanted to be. Anyway. Anyways. Yeah. Uh, I ran back into my original boyfriend that raped me and his friends that gang raped me. We were day drinking. It was a day, random day off. I think it was like uh, like a Monday or a Sunday or something like that. And we were day drinking. And I turned around and 
like the little the 13 year old was talking to one of uh one of my exes or my ex there and mm-hmm. i didn't i froze i didn't know how to how to deal with this and they were getting in a vehicle and going with them and i was like okay well i guess i'm going with these people uh so i ran into them and mm, the 13 year old told them that we were hookers and shame it was just the worst possible mm-hmm. way and once again because now i was this thing that they had told all of my hometown i was you know I once it got in their ears they yeah. brought it back and well, i they, imagine that felt like you could definitely couldn't go home now. I definitely couldn't go home now. Yeah. Well, yeah, because they had told everybody to justify the raping of me. They had told them all that I was a whore and that I had gotten drunk and that I had fucked them all willingly, which I had not done. But then for them to find out that their actions had actually drove me to become a hooker, that was surreal to me. Plus, I was drunk at the time when they dragged me in the back of the vehicle. And so the guy, my ex, um, he pulled me into the back of this truck uh, it was like a Yukon or something. He pulled me into the back of it and he was trying to get me to like have sex with him or suck his cock or something. I just remember him pulling his pants down and pulling up his, uh, his junk. Mm. And um, I screamed. I actually, it brought me out of shock because I was completely frozen up to that point because I didn't know what to do. And I screamed and I actually screamed so long and so loud that they pulled the vehicle over, I guess. At least I think that's what happened. And I jumped out of the vehicle and left that situation. So that happened. Then um, I was down working on Hastings Street and my friend the from Vancouver came to visit me and she was ripped on cocaine and I just wanted to visit with her and we got into a bit of an altercation that forced me um, to have to go back to work. I was very angry because I didn't want to work. And the next vehicle that pulled up was this little red car. And I opened up the vehicle door, the passenger side door, and I said, uh, you know, hey, I only do oral. And the guy was like, yep, that's great, get in kind of idea. And so I did, and everything was weird, and I had the heebie-jeebies from him, and he smelt funny. Um, The car was a disgusting mess. And I went with him anyways against all of my instincts at that point, right? Because my friend had just told me that uh, my pimps were getting really angry because I didn't want to work that night because all I wanted to do was visit with her. So I jumped in the vehicle. We got going off down the road. And I say, no, I just, like, go go left here. Like, I want to go up into, like, suburbia area um, to do this. And he didn't. He just kept driving straight. And then he hooked a right. And um, I just had this awful gut feeling. Um and was I he was, saying anything to you or? Uh, no, not really. He was pretty quiet. Didn't have a whole lot to say. And, uh, and I remembered at that point when this guy's giving me the creeps and he's pretty quiet, not really saying much, um, that the wish fan had actually handed out a, a bad date sheet and that there was girls going missing all over Hastings and especially in my area that we worked, that the girls were going missing and they weren't seen again. And that they think they thought that there was a um, serial killer on the loose, and uh, that serial killer turned out later on to be arrested and picked up as Robert Picton. Turns out that's who had picked me up was Robert Picton. So as he was rolling up to the to the stop sign, um, I was freaking out because I was like, if he gets on this next road, he's gonna be able to take me all the way back to wherever it is like i'm no stoplights there's not no stoplights it's just there's straight I, to the highway straight to the highway and i knew i was gonna not be okay with that so i made a split second decision and i jumped out of the car 
as it was driving up to the stop sign and I hit the ground, I rolled and I ran. Wow. So, yeah. Did yeah. you recognize him when you saw photos of him later? Later that on. Yeah, it, that's how I yeah. knew it was for He's him. He's got a very distinctive, creepy look. The hair. It was the hair and oh, the glasses. Yeah. Um, it was in a ponytail. I remember like it was like back in a ponytail, mm-hmm. I think. And uh, he just had something about his energy. I'm really energy sensitive. And there was just something that was really definitely off with his energy. And I just listened to my, you know, my, my gut feeling and just bailed from, from that moving vehicle and ran away from that situation. And I found out later on that um, he got smarter after that. And he actually took out the door handle on the passenger on side. On the passenger side. And I found that out because about a year ago I listened to a podcast about Robert Picton. And I heard a story that he had, in fact, gotten smarter. He had done that. And how they found that out was that one girl did get away but she couldn't get away from the handle. She got away by stabbing him. She had just gotten out of jail. She stabbed him and jumped over top of him to get out. And that's when I knew, well, I can't say I knew for sure, but that's when I felt in my heart that me jumping, ducking, and rolling out of that rolling, out of that vehicle the way it was is probably what was one of the things Light that... went off and hit his head. Yeah, like... Note oh, to self, remove door remove handle. Remove door handle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that that happened as well, yeah. Um, mm. As picked up by Robert Picton. There was a lot of other things that just coincided. Uh, he was in my block. He had been picked up before. He had just gotten out of jail, released, was back on the streets when I was, when I was working that block. It was, I mean, the time, the person, you know, my memories of how that person looked, and then just a bunch of the events that were going on around that time just all added up to, yeah, my near, I guess. Yeah, near-death experience, near even death if he didn't really didn't know it at the time or, like, how bad mm-hmm. it could have been. But yeah. how many women did he end up killing in the end? It was, like, I guess it's unknown, but I think it's, he got recorded in prison bragging about, like, 50 yeah, around that. I think I think he was, I don't want to say he was charged, but I think there was somewhere around the somewhere around 48 or 50 something and there's of course reports that say it was much higher um but then who knows because the police were not getting involved at that point there was a lot of heat down on the police for that yeah Um, rightfully so all of it was indigenous women and it's you know um i'm i've iroquois blood and um i know quite a bit of my own history in that fashion um and I was never raised to be, um, I was never raised to acknowledge that, that side of myself. But, you know, later on in years growing up and stuff, you know, you, you think about the amount of indigenous women that did go missing because nobody cared. I mean, nobody cared about women, nobody cared about prostitutes and nobody cared about the indigenous women. And so that Talk was about stratified yeah. sort of victimhood right and, yeah and that was another thing that really cinched it for me is that you know especially at that young age i had the high cheekbones i had the long black hair and he was picking up a lot of indigenous women and you know probably because he knew that it was safer knew. it was yeah. safer for for to cover his own ass entirely possible yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean there were a lot of people that said he was a scapegoat for other things i couldn't weigh in on any of that but um yeah that was my that was my experience yeah yeah, I came away from him. Yeah. So, so how did you meet your second pimp? That I think we were on that. Track yeah, we were on that track. Pulled it back there. Yeah, so yeah. let's uh, let's push it forward again from there. So, uh, the Rock, I had said that I didn't want to be a hooker anymore because there was uh, there was in- 
there's things going on within the gang itself that were really confusing for me at that time. I had started dating one of the guys that was in the gang that was not the person that I had been emotionally involved with um, in response to trying to escape the guy that I was emotionally uh, attached to. I was trying to prove that I was a piece of crap, essentially, because I was scared of, of how much I felt for him. So I was doing everything within my power to prove I was not this person he said that I was. So I had started dating another guy, and um, and that was kind of going south. I was really unhappy with that situation. He, he, he ended up being the first person that I had sex with uh, after I'd been raped. And it was, you know, I rolled my head to the side, and he just did his thing, and that was it. Like, I really didn't have a say in it. I didn't, wasn't invested in it emotionally. It was just, just another thing to tick off, you know, oh, got that check you know, mm-hmm. check mark. I'm no good because of this, right? You don't want to love me because of this. Um, I'm just as, you know, lousy as everyone says I am. Um, self-fulfilling prophecy once again, right? You know, I was trying to become somebody that, you know, to live up to everyone's low expectations. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, so that happened. Um, and, and then the whole Robert Picton thing, almost getting abducted, you know, so there, and, and then running into my ex, you know, so there was just a, it was just like one hit after another that was coming at me. So you were on your way out. I was on my way out. I was yeah. like, you know what? This is not the life. I, I can't, I don't want to be a hooker. Like, mm-hmm. this is just not okay with me. I hate what I'm doing. I was doing it out of loyalty. I was doing it out of love. And there was just too many hits coming my way. I can't even begin to cope with this. So I told them I wanted to quit. And then we went out for pizza, uh, myself and my uh, other girlfriend. And all of a sudden, the 13-year-old comes and finds us, and she just comes running up to us, and she is losing her mind because, you know, she's like, the Russians, the Russians, they've kicked in the door, and they've evicted everybody, and they said they're going to kill us if we come back there, and what are we going to do? And now we're all homeless, and there's 15 people. And so one of the head guys came up, and he said, okay, well, all you girls are going to have to, you're going to have to go to work right here, right now. We need a place. We need a hotel room. We need food. Like, this is family. This is what we do. And I was like, okay, but just this last time and he's like yeah, yeah yeah, i know i know i know you want to quit so then i did one of the things that you are never supposed to do which is i got into a cab why and are you never supposed to get into cabs i could not tell you that was just a rule that was said to me at the time by the girl that brought me in she said don't ever get into a cab with a guy if the guy's in there with a the cab don't do it um and I was terrified of cabs, actually. I had a real phobia of cabs since I was about five years old. So I was, yeah. at the time, I was like, yeah. Unrelated. Just yeah, un- completely unrelated. unrelated completely yeah. unrelated. Unless, unless you have certain spiritual beliefs where you're like, oh, right, that's coming. You know, so, so yeah, so I got in this cab with this guy. And he's like, yeah, we'll party it up. And he, him and the cab driver, uh, I jumped in with the young 13-year-old and, the other girl had already gone out on a date, and the other girl I had no idea where they were at that point. Um, I think I found out later they were, you know, up in an, they were up in another town in the Okanagan somewhere. They were actually scouting out new locations for us because they had been planning to move us um, out of Surrey. The mysterious they. Yeah, the mysterious. Yeah. They. I'll keep it mysterious. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So they had planned. They had been planning to move us up to Kelowna, and uh, and that's where they were. They were up there looking for a place for us. Um. So we went up with these guys back to uh, this hotel. They rented us a room for the night. And was this in Surrey? Yeah, it was in Surrey. It was uh, down by, I think it was Gateway Station. Okay. It wasn't too far. It was down the hill going before you went across the river there. And that place is, ironically, that place used to be where a lot of us used to turn 
tricks and and take dates to and now it, i think it's uh it's like a safe haven for women getting off the streets yeah oh, yeah in case so, they even wander back yeah, yeah. Still i think that was intentional i don't know it's still ah. painted the same colors and everything yeah ah. it weirded me out when i went back to go look at the place because yeah. I, I wanted to jog my memory for the book so so we go there and stuff and uh the cab driver the other girl shows up from her date she finds out that yep that's where we are they come over. She goes into one room with the date. I go in with a 13-year-old, and we're both um, working on this this guy that, you know, we just picked him up, and we're supposed to party. Everything's going to be great. So we all come out of the room afterwards. Everything's done, um, myself and the 13-year-old. And the guy comes out of the room, and the guys go, okay, like, out you go. You know, we're all going to stay We're going to party now. Yeah, we're going to party off. now. And the guy, uh, he's says no he goes actually i'm gonna take your bitches and uh, i'm taking them and there's just nothing you can do about it turns out he was another pimp and he ripped off his shirt which in the dark i had not seen you know cause the, the hotel room had been dark when we were in there the suite um and he is just covered in tattoos scary just got out of prison tattoos um and he did he said he goes i just got out of prison i don't give a fuck i'm high as a kite i'm taking your bitches they're mine now and yeah there's nothing you're gonna do and so one of the guys actually stepped up and he's like yeah no you're not and uh this guy would have been good to bring the bats yeah it would have been good yeah. to bring the bats this guy grabbed this a beer bottle smashed it on the table and grabbed my friend by the throat and actually stuck the beer bottle like up to his jugular and was like drawing blood and um and then there was this all you could hear was a screaming it turns out the screaming was me I was screaming because he was about to slit my, my friend's throat and I actually stepped in between them and uh, and I said, no, stop it. Like, stop. Don't kill him. I'll go with you. And that was how that happened. So, you know, was it kidnapped or was it self-sacrifice? Bit of, Bit of both. both. Bit definitely. Of both. Yeah. So, so, yeah, they threw me in the back of the cab and off into the sunset we went or yeah. sunrise, I guess. And where did he take you? Uh, he took us into Surrey somewhere. Uh I didn't know where we were because I didn't know that area at all. And he yeah. took us into a basement suite and locked us into a bedroom. You didn't think about ducking and rolling this time? No. 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 This guy's fucking crazy. I had the 13-year-old with me. Oh, yeah, exactly. So you have that loyalty to, yeah, to her as well. loyalty to her as well because I can't if you leave, leave he's going to fucking beat on her for yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And it turns out she did not have the same loyalty, by the way. <laughs> she bailed at first opportunity. You got a big heart. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't always pay off. Nah. So, um, yeah, he locked us in a basement. Um that first night was really weird because he had his girlfriend there in in the bedroom he locked us in the basement with him and his girlfriend and she was being really needy and she's all like oh baby i love you and he just beat the shit out of her right in front of us that first night i was like letting you know oh this yeah. is how it is this is how it is exactly yeah he, he welcome uh, home i think he cracked her ribs or oh. her sternum or something and she had a chipped tooth and so was she his his girlfriend or yeah, was she, she another was worker and she was both his girlfriend and and another worker yeah 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 so she worked for him and she loved him and that was how oh. he wrangled her in and and he had just gotten out of jail and what it was is that he um he had actually had a little harem i guess and then she was the the only one left standing when he got out of jail is my understanding of it you know but don't quote me because yeah. they'll tell you whatever they want you to believe right so yeah so that's how i ended up with him um she was in her 20s she had been a hairdresser before him and she fell in love with him and he was on the down and out and needed his girl to 
take care of him. And mm-hmm. next thing you know, she was turning tricks, she said. And she was busted all up. And she was addicted to cough syrup and smoking pot. And she was, she had the biggest, most beautiful eyes you'd ever seen. And you couldn't imagine a girl like her. Just to see her walking down the street. I mean, she'd been a hairstylist. I mean, her hair was always perfect. Her, her makeup was perfect. Her nails were perfect. She came from a big Italian family, you know, and here she was. Do you think they were looking for her? Do you think, because she seems like she was kind of, she had a more, I don't want to say normal, but more familiar relationship with this pimp. Do you think she could have had the option to leave? Because it sounds like you guys were straight up kidnapped, locked in the basement. Was she allowed to come and go or was she she on lockdown as well? No, she was allowed to come and go. But I think that, you know, locking a, Locking somebody in creates fear. And and this is something that I learned because I'm also a horse trainer. And I, I learned this from the streets, but I didn't realize I learned it from the streets until I was applying it to horses. Which is, there's always something that's going to come along that's bigger and badder than you and scare that horse or that girl into ducking out on you. Where she's going to throw your ass under the bus to save her own life. If you use fear as a controlling factor. But if you use love, like your previous gang, like my previous gang did, then you'll step in front of a broken beer bottle and take a hit for the family. Or in her case, you know, you'll let him beat you up time and time again and bring home other hookers and treat you like shit and still never leave him when he goes to jail. You know, I mean, love is, it creates, it doesn't matter if it's not real, say for the person that's manipulating you or the person that's abusing you. But it creates real feelings and real emotions and real memories in the person that is being gaslighted and or, um, you know, manipulated by a narcissist. And you can't, you can't reason with that. You know, you can't reason with that kind of love when someone's full-blown experiencing it. And there was no, there was no getting through to her on, on any level. I mean, I remember this one time. Um, right after the 13-year-old, I said the 13-year-old didn't have a loyal bone in her body. And I was right. She bailed hard. She went on a trick and never came back. Can hardly blame her, really. Oh, yeah. And she, well, he had taken her back now to the kiddie stroll. She wasn't even working in the area I was working. She was on her own. I don't blame her for bailing at all. She was a kid. She got picked up by um, other pimps, which you'll find out about later. And uh, and he went on the hunt for her. And he dragged me and the older girl with him, like his girlfriend. And he was... I don't. I can't even remember the last time he had slept. I mean, he was on crank. He was on every drug under the sun, and he was just wild, scary, terrifying, wild, threatening to kill us, threatening to make us walk from sun up till sundown until quote unquote our pussies dried up. He was going out and getting guns. He was gonna call all his boys in jail. You know, I mean, this guy was. He was just went ballistic on us. Why didn't you run away? Like like she did when you were when you were because I imagine you had was he waiting outside the doors when you were dealing with the Johns yeah. he was always nearby he was always especially after she ran I mean she ran like, I want to say within the first or second or third night or something I mean mm-hmm. she was she was out of there fast but he placed me with his girlfriend so she was out there on her own the thirteen year old was but he put me with her I had to work at the same stop as she did so I couldn't go anywhere right. 
and then he had the cab driver there, and we. What was the deal with the cab driver? Who the right? fuck was this guy? Yeah, yeah it's just some like random villain. cab driver. Yeah, <laughs> he was like my own personal chauffeur. I used Ugh. to I used to get really mad at him because uh, I had a real thing for Master P at the time. Make him say, oh, do, do you remember that song? No, I don't. Oh, I'm okay. showing my, my age. Oh, you're showing your youth, yeah. or I'm showing my age. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure it was very poppin'. <laughs> it was so good. Uh, I used to get in fights with him, and I just, and I would. The cab driver. Oh, the cab driver. And I would full on just a little diva and stuff, and I'd be like, I pay your salary, motherfucker. <laughs> you better yeah. play my music, or I'm going to tell my pimp. Um, yeah, he had us on lockdown. So Do you he... think he was a real cab driver? Or did he just have a cab? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. Um, but I just know he used to pick us up at the house and he would take us to the stop and then he would sit there and watch us. And then, or he would pick up the pimp and take him out partying to wherever club he went to. And then she, I had to work with her and stuff. And then I had to go home with her. And sometimes he would be um, watching us from the from the back porch she'd be sitting outside actually watching us and he told us he was watching us so there was you didn't know if he was out partying or if he was in the backyard watching us work you didn't know and, and yeah. it was really scary and he didn't want to take the risk he didn't want to take the risk clearly i was i was really scared of him after having seen him you know do the things he had done i mean breaking the beer bottle threatening to kill my friend beating up his girlfriend in front of us you know having just gone out of jail he he was really erotic or not erotic but um irrational yeah and uh yeah, he was erratic. That's the word I was going to There we go. Yeah, he was erratic, and he was really hard to predict because... And if he was doing that basically unprovoked, yeah. you didn't want to lead I him down a, a path. Yeah. yeah, and then the minute that the 13-year-old bailed, he was just uncontrollable. Like, his rage was uncontrollable, and he was, you know, threatening to go get guns and start this huge street war, and, you know, that was a real possibility at that point, for all I knew. I mean, he could have been full of shit, but I didn't know that. You know, I, I believed what he said because I had seen him do bad things. Have you ever seen the movie Room? Yes. Yeah. Yes, so I in have. a way, he kind of became your whole world. Mm-hmm. How long were you with him for? Do you have any idea or is it kind of... It's yeah. pretty It's pretty mucky. Like I Was he feeding you drugs? No. No, no he, free drugs? No free drugs. Uh-huh. I didn't do drugs on the streets. I caught high on cocaine once the entire time I was on the streets. I do know that um, I turned 16 in March... And I w- and that was when raped when my boyfriend raped me was like a week or two after that and yeah. I know that I was off the streets and had left town in the middle of the night. I want to say by like the end of August, I'm guessing. So yeah. you know, I had a lot of things happen in a very short amount of time, which really just tells you how insane it is out there on the streets and how unpredictable and how life can just change in the blink of an eye. Yeah. You know, you go from crashing on people's couches and next thing you know you're a hooker and then next thing you know you're being kidnapped and then locked in a basement locked in a basement psycho with a psycho yeah and he was really really manipulative i mean he was i i don't know who was playing who in in my relationship with him to be honest with you you know because i found out that certain things upset him to the point where he'd let me get away with stuff um but at the same time i took comfort when he'd freak out and and worry that he had made me cry you know and so we just we really it was a very toxic relationship um very unpredictable very unpredictable and again i think we were just playing he was trying to play me and i was trying to play him and uh eventually the gang did find me um and he was really strung out on drugs at this point i don't i don't know what his deal was but he was he was strung right out and the gang found me and 
one of my girlfriends came up one day and, and I brought her back with me. It's um, probably one of the things I'm most ashamed of doing when I was on the streets is knowing that he was abusive and knowing that he was unpredictable and at any point in time could turn on us and kill us, knowing that about Why did him. she go back with you? Wasn't she ha- was she happy with the gang or was she looking I don't for... Know. Yeah. I don't know. I know that they were looking for me. Right, and I know that she went back with me, and that I encouraged her to because I was, I was so scared that if I told her the truth, that she would leave me there and I would have no way out. And I yeah. was, so I brought her back with me, um, and he really flipped his fucking lid. You know, we came home one day a while after that, and he, you know, was making nooses and had knives in the in uh, the in the stovetop. In the stovetop, yeah. yeah, and he was like he was gonna hot knife something and. He uh, put the noose around her neck and... Around her neck. Uh, yeah, it was... He placed it around my neck? Her neck? Both? Like, yeah. it was... It was a really messy situation. And he had the knives up. Um, and he was going to cut our faces and scar us up. He started to scar us up because somebody had been stealing from him, he figured, and uh, shorting him. And uh, he slapped her. He slapped her. Yeah. Slapped her around. He didn't slap me and I started crying. Um, thinking that maybe my tears and in the past it had always worked in the past if I started to cry he'd back right off you know because he didn't want to push me over the edge um, and yeah so that was really when you realized whoa <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if this guy's coming back from the dark side on this one yeah. Yeah. How, how did you end up getting out of that situation um, a, few, a few things happened so I'd never had sex with anybody when I worked for the gang and just oral just oral yeah and when i went to go work for him i was terrified of him and so i was scared i wasn't allowed to say no to any tricks like i was in the past like in the past if someone wanted sex i could say no because there was you know three four five other girls right there that was within my group that would go have sex with him whereas in this one i couldn't say no and i was scared to say no because i was scared of him and so i started to have sex with tricks and that was that was really hard for me and stuff because I just remember I'd roll my eyes up and and look out the the window and sometimes his face would be right there right inside watching this thing happen um, and I went on a date once and the guy wanted to get a hotel room and I didn't know where my pimp was and so I got a hotel room with him because it was right beside my stop anyways it wasn't a big deal and the guy wanted to go down on me and that's something that I, again, I had not done. And the last time someone went down on me was when my boyfriend had raped me. And this was, I don't know, four, five, six months prior to that, whatever the timeline was, March, April, May, June, between June and July. So this is around like five months mark, I guess. Um, and he wanted to go down on me and I was terrified to say no because I needed the money to, to give to my pimp. And I was terrified to say yes because of what had happened the last time. You know, so I was caught between a rock and a hard spot. And he went down on me. Um, you know, we just kind of split a condom in half and covered it. Covered myself. And I had an orgasm. And I'd never had an orgasm, you know, with a man before, right? I mean, like, you know, in your early stages when you're a kid, yeah, you're masturbating. And you kind of know what an orgasm is. But not really. You kind of trip over it every now and again. But I had an orgasm. And I was incapable of expressing anything. I couldn't speak. I couldn't respond. I couldn't, my body didn't even flinch. He didn't even know. And I had to say to him, uh, yeah, I came. And he was like, oh, 
really? And then he just crawled up my body and started fucking me. Um, and I think that was the tipping point. Something. In what way? What, why? I slid into depression. Mm. I think, I think it was the trigger of, I think it was the first thing that, that reminded me of up until this point, I hadn't really thought about how I had gotten there. You know, how, how would I got into this situation? I was, I was a kid. I was 16 years old. I was raised on a farm. I rode horses. I was, you know, like an honor roll student in most cases, in most subjects that I went to. I read books like they were going out of style. I was quiet. I was an introvert. How was I stuck in a hotel room with a man crawling up and down my body doing things to me that I couldn't even talk about, that I couldn't even do in the light of day, that I couldn't, I couldn't love people, I couldn't, like hug or kiss them or have a normal relationship how did I get to that point where there was you know a megalomaniac running my life with terror and I was being forced into situations that were causing me real emotional distress you know and that was the I just snapped um I what was it about the orgasm that did that for you though if that was the moment I think it was the fact that he went down on me and mm. The, what my ex had said to me when he did that is he said, you're going to like this so much more than me. So there was a real fear of that. And then sex was a job. Sex was not something that I knew how to enjoy. Sex was not something that I wanted to do. Even when I had that boyfriend inside the gang, I mean, he fucked me, you know, and I'd smile and laugh. But there was no actual physical pleasure from anything that was happening to me. I was so disconnected from my body that the orgasm i think it forced me back into my body it put me i couldn't control it it was uncontrollable right and it so felt like your body betrayed, betrayed you me. yeah yeah so it felt like my body betrayed me and i had no control over what was happening to me anymore and yeah. i had gone into it perhaps as a power play as a way of you know staying within the gang and taking control of my life and belonging somewhere and here I was, and everything was just as out of control as it ever been. Yeah, and you weren't supposed to, quote-unquote, enjoy it. Yeah, no, that was a massive betrayal. So that mind-body disconnect. Yeah, so. I just fled. Yeah, I fled energetically. I fled myself, and I sunk in. I sank into a depression that was, I think, almost irreversible at that point. Um, I stopped showering. I started contemplating suicide. You know, there's just all kinds of wild and crazy thoughts racing through my head. And that was ultimately how I got um, away from that pimp was I just told him. I said I was in the shower literally planning suicide. And I said to him, I was like, what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do? Are you going to stick me in a dumpster? Or are you going to call the ambulance and have him come get me and explain why you have a half-dead kid in your, in your shower and stuff? And he uh, told me, get the fuck out. <laughs> He's like, get the fuck out. I don't uh, I don't want to be anywhere near you. Not worth the trouble Not anymore. worth the trouble anymore. No, well, I was broken. And he knew that. He wasn't stupid. I wasn't making money anymore. And, and you know, I, he had broken his favorite toy. I was his favorite toy. You'll have to read about the book to see to understand why I was his toy. Yeah. 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 So, kicked me out without shoes. He took away all the, yep. you know, because he'd taken me away from everything I had before. So, he had to go and buy me all new stuff. And... He sent me out, not even with my shoes. He took them back. Um, so I went out and I ended up running into this 13-year-old that had abandoned me, that had taken up with other pimps. And I'm like, woo, I'm free. You know, I've got no pimp. And he did tell him. He told me that uh, if he ever caught me working ever again, he would uh, slip my throat and kill me or something to that effect, I'm sure. Um, he, It was, yeah, it was, it was a pretty... It was, 
good threat. And I ran into the 13-year-old, and she was working uh, for these other pimps. Um, it was a woman, actually a madam, and then the madam's uh, boyfriend. So, and she said, uh, hey, let's, you know, let's party, let's drink, let's hang out. And I was like, fuck yeah, I'm free. Like, you know, I got no pimps, I got no nothing, and my Was friend... a madam a kind of fresh change of pace at that point? Oh, I have no idea. I, I just remember feeling not, I remember not feeling threatened by her. You know, I did not feel threatened by her because... The well, the bar was pretty low after that, dude, yeah. <laughs> I imagine. Yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of... Uh, I, didn't th- I didn't think at that point that there was a whole lot that could shake me after all of that that I had been through. And I just... I had this, fres- this zeal for life knowing that I was free all of a sudden. You know, he had kicked me out because I was, you know, broken, but I wasn't really broken. I just... I walked out and I was like, oh, no, I was just tired of that situation. I'm fine. So what I failed to mention... <laughs> is that during that time when I was working for that pimp, other pimps had been trying to buy me from him. Pimps that were across the street. And they had rolled up on me a few times and told me that he that my man had sold me and to get in the fucking car. And they'd made every threat under the sun. And I had had to look down at the ground and not. Yeah, you mentioned rules mm-hmm. when I heard you on Chris's podcast, yeah. certain rules of the street. Rules of the do you, street. Do you remember them? Yeah. Yeah, so, so people would be interested because it's not a world people necessarily um, know about. So you were not allowed to look at other pimps. You had to keep your eyes downcast at all times. You were not You were not allowed to talk to other pimps. Um, you, uh, what else was there? Yeah, don't get into cabs. <laughs> I guess we proved why that one. Apparently pimps roll around in cabs. Uh, what else was there? Um, yeah, I'm drawing a blank right now. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Don't hang out with other pimps, you, girls. Yeah. Oh, you yeah, know. you know, you weren't allowed to hang out on any other, any other girls' corners. Mm-hmm. So that actually plays a really big part. So I had always been allowed to hang out on other people's corners. I didn't realize that's because they were part of um, our group, just in a larger sense that I hadn't been introduced to, but I was allowed to hang out with them. And so when I worked with, um, for the second pimp with his girl across the road across the highway actually was another girl that worked there and it was her guys her pimps that were trying to buy me they were trying to trick me into getting in their vehicle and going to work for them and i remember the reason why i knew that they were trying to buy me is because after the 13 year old chose up that's what we call when a girl chooses to go with a different pimp she chose to go with the other pimps i just didn't know at the time they had approached my pimp and asked if he was willing to sell me and he screamed in my face when he was looking for the 13 year old that they had been trying to buy me and that I was in on it and it was you know some kind of conspiracy against him and there's no way he'd ever let me go da 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 so when they threatened and tried to get me to go with him I knew that they were lying because he had told me that they were after me he told me there was no way he'd let me go with them so anyway, so now now he's kicked me out and he's told me if you ever see you working again, I'll kill you. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to work anymore. I don't really care. I'm leaving town. And then I decide to go have a drink with my old pal, the 13-year-old, and her madam who's completely non-threatening to me. You know, she's just this big, fat, old, lazy woman, right? And I'm like, yeah, not a problem. So we get into their vehicle, their station wagon, and this girl that was with them happened to be friends with my old neighbor and I was like oh familiarity right I was like okay these guys have to be cool to go through nothing bad can happen to me because I know that she's a friend of a friend right so I jump in the vehicle 
And they're like, oh, well, we're going to go. We're going to have a bonfire out in New West. It'll be great. You know, we're going to go up to this old junkyard and we'll just party and then we'll drop you off wherever it is you want to go. And I'm like, yeah, that's fantastic. So I jump in the vehicle with them. They're like, oh, we just have to fuel up before we go. And as they pull in to the gas station, another car rolls in and it comes from the opposite direction. I'm like, oh, those guys look kind of familiar. I'm like, huh, can't place them though whatever i'm drinking i'm smoking drinking some of that oldie you know mm. the good stuff um and next thing you know, i look out and the the madam and her boyfriend are arguing with these two people that have come up um and uh and next thing you know they're all gesturing wildly and they're like then they storm over they get in the vehicle and, and i have this sinking feeling it's like what is going on here they're like oh we're just gonna go around the corner it's fine it's fine it's fine so we get around the corner turns out that the guys that they were arguing with were the pimps that had been trying to buy me from my previous pimp and they were claiming that they had put a charge on me that's another rule by the way um so a charge is where a random pimp if you've if you've done an infraction or something that they think is disrespectful or something that goes against the rules they can force you to pay them money kind of like giving you a ticket like a bullshit cop thing you know mm -hmm. like a cop says that you didn't have your seatbelt on but you clearly had your seatbelt on but they give you the ticket anyways you can't really argue your way of it you gotta pay the thing same situation except you get beat up instead of you know going to jail, jail going to jail yep. exactly you just get your ass whooped so um anyway so these they the madam and the pimp or her boyfriend they get out of the the station wagon and they're like, just stay here, just stay here, we'll handle this, right? And I'm going, oh, fuck, I'm drunk. You know, I've just been, just gotten away from one pimp, and here I'm in, like, a really wretched situation. So I stay put, and then all of a sudden, the passenger door gets ripped open, and this guy reaches in, and he grabs me by my hair. And then the door on the other side gets ripped open, and he grabs me by my arm, and it's actually this arm. So I'm just, like getting pulled apart I'm getting pulled apart like one of those old western movies where Tug they tie a guy to a horse in a tree kind of idea so as this is happening I start screaming my arm pops I've actually dislocated my shoulder when this happened um, I didn't know that by the way uh, until yeah. I saw a therapist <laughs> later and they had to put my shoulder back together um, and it turns out like even the muscles in my shoulders three main muscles and they had reformed as one when I dislocated my shoulder mm -hmm. and they popped my shoulder back in and then we had to go in and tear all the muscles apart so anyway so yeah so they pull me they're pulling me apart and I'm screaming my face off and the cop station is I don't know like I'm not good with feet but it's pretty close it's across the street so it's kind of like great place for a yeah pimp showdown awesome right yeah yeah my trusting, can't make this shit up no my, yeah. my trusting cops is uh so, um, yeah, the guy lets, the, the one guy lets go and the other guy drags me, rips me up on my hair and kind of stands me up and then punches me and knocks me back down and, you know, beats me up a little bit while I'm on the ground in the dirt and I'm screaming and crying because I'm cops drunk. And nowhere to be cops found. are nowhere to be found. Off of Timmy Hose. Yeah, probably, yeah. right? And there's, and there's a group of people watching this happen. And so here's this girl that was my best friends with my neighbor watching this thing happen and here's this you know madam and her boyfriend watching this thing happen the 13 year old and they're standing around this guy beats me up anyways so um i'm on the ground i'm eating my own blood and dirt and, and then i'm told that i have to choose up so i'm told that i have a charge i'm told i have to choose up 
And I'm like, well, I don't know what that is. So what the fuck do you want from me? And, uh, and they said, you have to choose who do you want to be your pimp? And at that point, I'm like, not fucking rocket science here. I'm like, I might be stupid, but I'm not that stupid. You just tried to kill me. And here's these other people standing there as bystanders. I'm like, I'm going to go with the bystanders, thanks. Mm -hmm. So the madam. I went with the madam. Yeah. Yeah, Because she seemed just the least threatening. So yeah, so that's how... She didn't bust your shoulder. She didn't bust up your lip. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So that was how I ended up with my, I don't know if you'd call it my third or my fourth pimp. I mean, one was fine for the, for the position, I guess. And yeah, but I, I made a choice and stuff. So yeah, so, uh... He failed the interview. He failed. Yeah. Doesn't count. We'll no. go with third pimp. Yeah, exactly. So that was uh, that was how I ended up with the third pimp. Um, and then that was, it was shortly after the cops picked me up. Interesting side note, which is that uh, the madam took me back to my hometown Langley. She had two daughters and she lived with her mom and she was pimping a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old out of her home. And had us living in a trailer in the backyard. A little bit like room in like an abstract fashion, but you know, living in the backyard in your own hometown and no one knows where you are and here's all these awful things happening to you. So yeah. So right in my own hometown could be anyone's neighbor. Yeah. Yeah. But at that point you were choosing to stay. You could have I'd, ran away or I mean No, I'd been no. beaten up pretty good. Yeah, at that point. You know, like the only the only people I chose to stay with and even them I told them I wanted to leave was the original gang. You know, like Oh yeah, I guess you'd chosen up. So, I I yeah. chosen up, but I chosen mean, that didn't that didn't mean I chose the situation I was in. Yeah. It means that I chose the person that I didn't think was gonna kill me the fastest. But you still belong to them. I, I belong to them. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. They owned me in their in their world. In their world, they they owned me, and in my eyes, that was just a forced situation where I tried to make the best of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and how did how did you end up getting out in the in the end? Oh, this so this is the stuff we didn't get to cover on Chris's podcast. Yeah, I, kind of I was feel listening like, to it today, and I was yeah. like. I, I, I don't feel like we ended that no, story. No, we didn't end it. So I kind of feel he like got it, cold. Yeah, <laughs> he had to go inside. Yeah, it was. It was actually the sun went down. It was yeah. really cold. Um, yeah, I feel like we kind of cheated your listeners on like all the stuff that I covered in Chris's. But uh, well, you can listen to both. You can listen to both, there and I'm writing a book, so there you go. You get the full keep... unabridged version. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So how I got out, um, I ran. <laughs> <laughs> like that gecko across water. There you go. That was how I got out. So I got picked up by the cops, and we talked about that. Remember, I told you how I got picked up by the cops, and mm-hmm. I was beaten all up, and they hauled me in, and no, no, none of my family, mem- my family member didn't come get me. And they dropped me off at a halfway house. So the thirteen-year-old was with me when we got arrested, and they dropped us off at this this house, and the woman opened up the gate, and the thirteen-year-old went to go call the pimps to come get her. And I ran. And I told her I was going to run. I was like, I'm going to run. Like, I'm not going into that house, and I'm not getting picked up by these pimps again. Like, I'm out of here. And she's like, well, no, I'm calling the pimps. I'm like, you fucking do what you got to do then, you know. So she did. She called them, and I ran. And I got to a payphone, and I called um, my friend, the one that had been working with me at all the places I had been at. And I went to her boyfriend's place. Um, and she'd broken up with that boyfriend because he'd beaten her up really badly, and we were staying at... We went to her new boyfriend's place, and he, uh, turns out it was a whole other gang whose name I don't remember, but they were pretty prominent at the time from what I learned from the 
the woman who uh, had started that Children of the Street Society. So I was hanging out with them, and he was trying to get a bunch of girls to work for him. He was recruiting a bunch of girls. And uh, he had her, and he tried to rape me, and I... Uh, I was starting to sort of date this this other guy, and, and I will say his name, because his name was Johnny, and he, uh, he was from Africa, and he had this delicious accent, and, uh, and he liked to smoke crack, so he used to say to me... Mixed bag. Yeah, mixed bag, mixed yeah. bag, and his English wasn't so good, and he used to say to me, uh, baby, let's do that thing where we touch lip to lip, and I'd giggle like a school, like, <laughs> okay. That's... It was so sad. It was... It was it was adorable. You're really selling it for me. I'm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. He was like the first guy that I wanted to kiss. Yeah. After everything that it's had happened. It's amazing what an accent can do. It is amazing yeah. what a six foot four Oh, yeah. yeah accent. That helps too. It does. It was great. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so when my friend's boyfriend tried to rape me, he actually came in and pulled him off of me, which is, you know, was he my boyfriend because he protected me or was he my boyfriend because I liked his accent? I mean... Yeah. yeah. At that point, you weren't really having normal relationships on any front. No. So there is... It's hard. I don't think it's... We can't really quantify anything, really. That, no. Or categorize, categorize rather. It. Yeah, there point. is... Uh, I was just trying to stay afloat. Essentially, it was like, well, date this guy or get raped, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. I think I'd rather sleep next to a guy smoking crack who's passed out and... The At least he was twitchy. charming. He was super charming, yeah. right? Yeah. There you go. Miles yeah. ahead. Miles ahead. Yeah. So, um... What ended up happening at that place, though, we'd been staying there for a while. They had been trying to get me to um, to work for them, and I wasn't having it. Uh, and then home invasion happened. So they had done a home invasion on one place, and then someone came and did a home invasion on their place. And I was in the place when the home invasion took off. And there was, this, there was another 13, 14-year-old young boy living there. And he was living under the stairs. Um, what did you call the young prostitutes again? Prostitutes. Oh, jeez. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I worked with a lot of prostitutes. Yeah, yeah, on the on the on the child walk. On the, the kitty stroll. The kitty stroll. The kitty stroll. Oh God, we were so derogatory to ourselves. And I think that's one of the saddest things is that, you know, I still laugh about it. And do I laugh because it's funny, and I have a morbid sense of humor because of you know the amount of things that I have survived, probably. Or do I laugh because we have been taught to disregard our own feelings and play into um the social expectations of what of what a woman and a hooker is well i think that might be why humor even exists to fight the existential dread Mm -hmm. you know that's why we laugh at things to distract ourselves to make the best of a situation i laugh at horrible things i mean my my biological father died he was dead for six weeks before we found his body and I packed his ashes around in my truck. And people would be like, what's that? And I'd be like, it's my dad. And they're like, uh, why do you have your dad? And I was like, listen here. This son of a bitch is going to spend time with me until I've decided that I've had enough time with my dad. And oh <laughs> I was God. like, and, and when I say it's over, then it's over. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, um, and I laughed. And I would laugh about stuff like that. And it sounds so twisted and so morbid. But, you know, there's some real truth behind that, right? So I think people can relate. Yeah. yeah. So it was, you know, like, am I a little twisty? Yeah, definitely. A little twisty, a little dark. Absolutely. But, you know, I laugh at a lot of things because I genuinely do find the humor in them. Where mm-hmm. just the irony or the, the sheer absurdity. Yeah. I think we're all a little situation. twisted. Otherwise, you're not really being honest with yourself. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Those people act shocked, but I think that secretly they're 
you know, their inner Chucky doll is just sitting there chuckling with glee, you mm-hmm. know, sharpening his own bloody knife. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important to take him out for walks some, sometimes. <laughs> that way he that way it won't Put explode. That child harness on yeah, him, right? exactly. Yeah. That way he won't explode at an inopportune moment. Yeah. We all have both wolves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was, uh, I made a choice and I thought, you know, charming crack addict versus rape. Yep. I'm okay with that. Yep. Um, so yeah, so anyway, so yeah, the, we had the break in. So this 14 year old wanted to show me his adorable little cubby hole of a bedroom underneath the stairs. I was like, yeah, I'm down. I like cubby holes. This is some cool shit. I grew up with tree houses. So we crawl, we got to go crawl under. We had to crawl under the side table to go behind the couch to get underneath of these stairs where this little weird door was. And right when we're crawling under there, all of a sudden, the door goes flying open and all you hear is like pop, 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 pop and shit's breaking and people are screaming. And, uh, and I was like, hmm, I've been raped. I've been kidnapped. I have been beaten. And now I've been shot at. I think I've had enough. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think I'm just white flag. Like I'm fucking done here. Yeah. Yeah. So. So it really just reached its natural conclusion. There was no sort of, well, I guess the the shooting counts as a bit of a catalyst. But, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I was done before, but I didn't know where to go from there. You know, yeah. like I was I was very much on the fence. Like, well, shit, I can't go back to Langley because now I, you gotta remember I've abandoned another pimp. So like I can't work in Surrey because I got one pimp who started needing to kill me. I can't go back to Langley. Because now i got a madam that I've already run away from. And I've got a charge on me. So if these other guys find me, they're definitely going to kill me. So I've got, like, nowhere left to go mm-hmm. at all. And I'm going, fuck, what do I do? You know, and now I've been shot at in New Westminster. Like, what the fuck? So, yeah, I um, I ran. So once everything went quiet. And, and, and I should actually go back and say, I can't tell you whether or not any bullets actually pierced the air or if it was a bullet that shattered the lamp above my head. I can't actually say that because I didn't see anyone come in with guns because I was under a table going into a cubby hole. Yeah. Um, but. Well, luckily. Yeah. Shit exploded around me. Everybody cleared out, you know, and I heard pop, pop, pop. So I'm jumping to a conclusion, I guess. Um, I'm assuming that yeah. that was guns. Well, it got you out of there. Got me out of there. So, so that's good. Anyways, yeah, moving on. So uh, I did. I ran out and I called a guy from the Surrey Street Connection. Um, and they were just a youth group. And he had found me and given me his card previously. And I somehow I had kept this card all this time. You know, I yeah, you'd think the pimps would have ripped that right out of you your hands. You would think so. Yeah. I, I, to this day, I, don't, I honestly don't remember if I had memorized this number or if I had the card on me. I don't know. Yeah. But I know that I called him. Pre-cell phone, we were all a bit better at remembering. Yeah, we were all a bit better at remembering numbers back then. And yeah, so I called him and I said, I want out. And he said, I need you to give me a week. And I'm going... What? Yeah, right? (laughs) I'm going, there are people here legitimately trying to kill me at this point. There are people hunting for me. I can't just like... Yeah, I got three people I've now definitely pissed off. So like, I'm out of options. And he goes, well, I need you to lay low. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I called up a friend of a friend. And I went to go stay with them. And um, sh- the the girl, she said, yeah, of course, you know, come on in. You can stay with us. They didn't know how dire my situation was. They just knew that I needed a place to stay. They didn't know that people were looking for me. They didn't know the wreck I had been in. But they had heard that I had been a hooker. So they had 
and sympathy. I, yeah, they you know. You know, no, actually, there wasn't sympathy there, but they definitely, you know, they let me stay, but it was grudgingly kind of idea. Okay. So uh, then the girl, she she's the one who was like, yeah, yeah, come stay with us. And, of course, her boyfriend was like, no, no, no. And then she ended up having to leave and go up country with her mom for something. And she left me behind with him and all of his roommates. And he turned around and said to me that uh, you need to get out and uh, unless you have sex with me. Yeah. And I'm going sex with my friend's boyfriend. Awesome. We'll just add that to the list of fucking shit that, you know, going to hell for. So, yeah. So I did. And that was how I managed to have a place to stay for, for that week. week. Yeah. Why the fuck? Did that worker need a week to get you somewhere? Did you ever find out? No. I, I guess never. at that point you just didn't want to rock the boat. Didn't want. He asked me, you know, like where was somewhere safe? Where did I want to go? And I told him where I wanted to go. Um, where the only place I could think of that was safe for me at that point was a childhood friend's place uh, that was out of town. And yeah, and so it just I guess it took him a while to put that together for me. Yeah. So yeah, so. Um, they told me that I had to go back into Surrey to meet them. They couldn't come into Vancouver to pick me up. I had to go into Surrey to meet up. My aunt was going to pick me up, and I was going to stay at her place until the people, my family friends, could come get me. So as I went into Surrey on that last night, and I told the Peter from Surrey Reconnect that I just wanted to walk down the old lane which was low track at that point because there was a girl whose place was there that we used to all party at and I wanted to say goodbye to my friends because I had heard that they were there and uh, and I walked out there and sure enough the gang was there and my boyfriend the guy that had been my boyfriend the guy that that's the reason I got the charge by the way the, the $500 charge that they put on me was because the gang had found me and they had been sitting at his girl's work spot and told her that they were there for me. That was how I got the charge. It was because of my ex-boyfriend. Because they were looking for you. Because the gang was looking for me. And they had actually sent my other friend in to go get me. So I find out all this stuff. And all of a sudden, and then I see them. And I'm like, breaks, whoa, I can't leave. I can't go. I need to stay. And my aunt's there. And she's like, you're coming with me. And I'm like... Yeah, no, I think I've changed my mind. Yeah, my family's right here. They, you know, they came for me when I got kidnapped. They sent a person in to get me out of there. They're here now. We're moving to Kelowna. They're going to tattoo us. Oh, yeah, they were going to they were gonna put tattoos on us. They were going to put the gang initials on us. Um, and I was okay with that. I was like, yep, yeah, nope, you know, like, just, I did a complete 180 from wanting out to just, you know, needing to stay. I couldn't imagine leaving at that point. Did they drag you out or did you stay? My aunt, God bless her heart, she actually was a carny for a long time. And like, they're we, tough. We talked about how my mom was a badass. Yeah, my aunt at 14, I think it was 14, she went and became a carny. She was tougher. And I worked with carnies. Yeah. I, I in, you get Aus- it? in Australia, yeah, because people listening might be like, "What the fuck?" I mean, how? but no, carnies are batshit crazy. Yeah, yeah. And, and my aunt had been a carny and ran a house and lived with them for like 
my understanding of it was a few years. So she mm-hmm. was she was not someone you wanted to trifle with either. Yeah. Like again, I when came... people say got kidnapped by the circus, yeah, that yeah, is yeah. an expression that is based in in real truth. In in yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. So my aunt went toe to toe with my ex boyfriend, and I asked her about that once, and I said, "How did you go toe to toe with him?" And she said, "She goes, she goes. I was terrified. She says she was fucking. She was shaking in her boots, but she knew she couldn't back down." This may be, if you're about to go to Kelowna, mm-hmm. get tatted up. Oh, yeah. You know. There was no bringing me back from that, and I think she knew that. And she didn't know what all had happened to me. She just knew that things were bad and that whatever the Reconnect worker had told her about the gang that I was with, there was no way. And he couldn't intervene, and they couldn't call the cops in. And so here we are in someone's backyard right off of low track, and my aunt is going toe-to-toe with the gang, and she's dragging me out of there whether she has to fucking call in her her boyfriend or not you know and he's out of jail too by the way so like shit's getting crazy and um and peter grabbed me and they they wrestled me out of there and i was not going willingly i was like nope i'm staying and they pulled me out wow yeah that's how it all ended and that's sort of well that that part of it part of it yeah 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 Yeah, so they hauled me out of there my my aunt and peter did yeah so I think we're we're two hours in. Oh my gosh. I do I do want to do a part two where Ugh. we've kind of we've talked about what happened yeah, to you. Definitely. But I think I want to bring you in again to talk about how you've kind of rebuilt your life from definitely. there because you're doing all these these things, which I want to talk about before we go. Sure. So you've got a project called Moxie uh, Global, Moxie which is moxieglobal.org for anyone interested in reading up on it. Um, what, what's, what's the plan with that? I know it has, uh, relates to your experiences on the street, but you yeah. can probably explain it better than I. Uh, so Moxie Global, it's a resource site that I'm building and it, that's all it is. It's, it's resources to help girls help themselves, help anybody help themselves. I mean, you don't, you don't have to have been trafficked. You don't have to have been sexually abused to want to better your situation, to want to educate yourself, to want to live your life to the fullest or, you know, to live consciously and mindfully. Right, mm-hmm. and that's really all that's about. Moxie Global, um, you know, it's gonna it's gonna tell you the books that I'm reading right now, or that I have read that I found, you know, real comfort in, yeah. like Shafti Woman or the Female Brain or the Male Brain. Um, you know, Furiously was it Furiously Happy? Just random books that I love, or uh, you know, how uh, remembering the things I drank to forget. I mean, these are all just books that that I've read that I've taken comfort in that have, you know, made me feel connected at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it talks about the movies. Maybe you need inspiration to help you get through something. It, uh, it'll it offer you different places, hopefully, that you can go to to, say, learn martial arts. So I'm a martial artist now. Um, I fought in Thailand, and I trained over there when my partner died. And that really brought me um, in back into my body at a time when I wanted to flee myself Yeah. And during um, when I was grieving. So it talks a lot about martial arts, why we do them, what different places, different gyms. And uh, it talks about, it's no longer referred to a specialized kinesiology due to an argument with kinesiology um, in Canada. But uh, I refer to it as energy balancing or brain integration or applied physiology, which is essentially Eastern and Western medicine come together through a series of acupressure points and neuroscience in to help pull the stress off of the different systems that run PTSD and that can close your body down and put you into a stage three stress 
Yeah, and you've been working with another future guest, Dr. Paul Tanare, who yeah. you put me into contact with. I did. So yes. we'll, we'll be able to hear more about the sort of sciencey stuff for, from him probably well, in a couple months' time. Yeah, Dr. Paul Tanari introduced me to something that I really, I really struggle with the therapy in this sec. Um, so I mean, like I, I do the brain integration and I do applied physiology and I let go of past traumas uh, through acupressure points and through you know various uh, therapies. However, the therapy that he's doing um, it is with uh, lymphatic it is lymphatic therapy, and he's going to explain it so much better than I am. And and I I have a really hard time with the sessions that I'm doing with him. Not because he's not amazing; he's phenomenal. But because the amount of trauma that I have to my uterus and my cervix um, from being abused the way that I've been abused for, you know, a lot of years, he's helping me to let go of that. And a lot of what I have in my stomach is not fat. It's actually lymphatic fluid that's been built up and stored up. And I have a lot of trauma there. So we do uh, therapy through um, releasing, purging the lymphatic fluid through... uh, the lymph nodes and in my g-spot area mm. so it's it's hard it's it's probably one of the hardest therapies i've ever had to do and it's a physical therapy it's not you know i mean i'm i'm hyper intellectual and i'm hyper vigilant I'm, I'm a lot of things and i like to look at those as super like i have like super capes you know because of my traumas this is probably the hardest thing i've ever had to do is to put myself back in a position to feel certain things that part of your body that part again. of my body and yeah. that's that's a big part about what he's doing is he's helping me to reconnect um my brain to my body yeah, yeah. Well, it's like it's like when people do mdma therapy mm-hmm. oftentimes when people have ptsd they can't there's a traumatic event in their life that they really need to mentally go back to yeah. in order to heal from it mm-hmm. but when they're completely sober they'll just go into a state of panic whenever they go there but with like experimental mdma treatments and i'm experimental this is why it was invented in holland was for like couples therapy and dealing with dealing with trauma but anyway uh yeah when you're on on that substance you're able to examine those incidents in a way that you're not going to go into just an immediate state of panic and you can sort of you know, mentally process them in a way that you might not be able to otherwise. And it sounds kind of maybe like you're going through it, the, the physiological metaphor for, for that yeah. kind of treatment. Like this or the second treatment we did, I couldn't control my crying. Um, and all I could think about during, during that whole time was that how incredibly heartbreaking it was that I had to go through this therapy that felt like a violation in order to reclaim something that I had not known had been stolen from me. Like, I did not know certain things about sex or about emotions as a result of my initiation into being a woman, so to speak. It all happened. It all got mixed in with all of that trauma. Yeah, it, it, it was, I was attacked, essentially. I mean, it was just attack after attack, and, and I settled into it, and I learned how to, you know, move around, and I learned how to function, but I did not understand the complexity of deeper emotional connections. I was incapable of it because I had too much trauma in the way. Yeah. So um, I was on I was on the bed and, and, you know, he's purging, gives me like a lymphatic massage and then he's purging that and, and I couldn't stop crying. And it was like ugly gasping, can hardly breathe because I'm so heartbroken for the girl that only knows rape. And it yeah. was just, it was it was almost more traumatizing than what it all happened to me, yeah. you know? And, and once I let that go though, it was, it was okay. 
but I had to cry like that. So right now I'm doing a series of really hard therapies that are hard on me emotionally, but ultimately are for the greater good of my higher soul purpose. And I, and so I take comfort in knowing that, you know, I'm not saying that someone has to go out and do this therapy, but it is, again, it's another thing that Moxie Global will say is like, you know, here are the therapies that have worked for me. Here are the therapies that I have tried. Here are some lines you know, that maybe you want to read in between and find your own way. But ultimately, here's, here's, I'm holding space. You know, Moxie Global, I'm just going to hold some space here. And if you are down and out, if you are depressed, if you are sad, if you are suicidal, if you don't know where to turn to next, here's some shit I've tried. And this helped me get to where I am. You know, animal therapy. And I've recently signed on to work with a ranch called Camino Ranch Association. And it's uh, a home that's being created specifically for at-risk youth like I was that have aged out of foster care. I mean, I hadn't aged out of foster care, but these, you know, were open. That's a dangerous point. That's a dangerous point. They've aged out of foster care and this place is being opened up to them. And I am the lead instructor and herd manager. These girls get to come and live for a full year at this place. And it is a, it's a million dollar property. I mean, the house is incredible. It's this huge six bedroom house sprawling acreage set horses. up horses yeah horses my sister around my, our, my family paid out the ass to go to horse camp yeah, you know yeah. yeah and these girls get to come in they get to learn the basics they get to learn how to cook they get to learn how to manage money they get to learn how to garden they get to learn how to work with horses they get lessons from me they learn how to be present and mindful and they're going to give in real skills to help them go out into the world and accomplish whatever it is that they might want to accomplish. Yeah. They're, they're, they're being given an opportunity to fulfill their dreams. And so I've just, I've just joined up with Camino Ranch. So yeah, so I've, I've got the Camino Ranch thing going on. I've got, you know, um, Moxie Global's going on. I'm now doing energy work on horses. I, I have a horse training business and I'm completing a book. So. Yeah, which is going to be called Hooked, right? Hooked. Yeah. yeah. So we'll be sure to do a shout out on our show oh, as soon you. as soon as that is that is released. Yeah. Well, you've been on a long road. Yes. Yeah. Very long road. Lots of stories. Lots of stories. <laughs> so yeah, we'll definitely bring you back for a part two because awesome. we've seen how you got to the pit, and we're going to show you how you got out. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's been a been a lot of landsliding to get yeah. to get here but you know it's exciting ups and downs you know what though like i've had the most phenomenal life most phenomenal life i've been so blessed beyond i mean there have been some shitty things happen like you know most most recently and this is within like the last four or five years now i mean the person i thought i was gonna spend the rest of my life with committed suicide you know and like and i still get emotional about thinking about that but it took me a while it took me about four years three, four years to find the gift in his death. And, you know, and the gift was that I'm here and I get to write this book and that I get to show other people that it doesn't matter how many hits, it doesn't matter the amount of traumas that you endure. There is still so many beautiful things in this world to live for. And there are so many incredible things to do and to try and people to meet and stories to be told and, and lives to live. I mean, you don't have to live one life. You can, you know, you can live a thousand lives in in a hundred years you know you just have to make that choice and um you know my partner dying the way that he did it just i wouldn't be here if he hadn't done that i would be in the middle of nowhere married up raising his kids with him riding horses all day yeah i wouldn't be here if he hadn't have died and so i think that there's a lot of lessons to be learned from that and i think accountability is where it starts at so you know i think it's important that people own their stories and be willing 
to expose themselves to others to form a real human connection because I think that that's more or less one of the things that keeps human trafficking alive is the inability to connect and the stigma that surrounds it. Um, even girls who are out of it now. I, that's what struck it. me about your interview is your how candid you are about the entire experience. Oh, and I, I think that that's really, really important. I mean that. Oh, and thanks. yeah, talk about full spectrum experience of yeah. your life. You've lived a very full life on, on either end and you certainly seem to know who you are. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I think, uh, I think it's less about knowing who I am and it's more about the fact that I'm building myself into the person that, um, that I want to be. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I love that. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. Rayanne Irving. Okay. (laughs) All right, folks. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Rayanne. If you did, uh, please rate and review us wherever you can. We should be up on all the apps now. And if not, we will be in the next few days. So be sure to like and subscribe wherever you have the power to do so. If you want to reach out to the show, you can follow me on Instagram at Elsewhere. You can write us an email at eastvandelsewhere at gmail.com. You can follow our lovely sound engineer, Cody, at Bitcrack on SoundCloud. And you can find us at our home on the web, eastvandelsewhere.com. We're going to play you out with a song that doesn't have a ton to do with tonight's show, but it's powerful, feminine, and it gets pretty funky towards the end. This is Marina by Sleepy Sun.
Yeah.